Today's episode of the BS Podcast is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Finding key players for your team can be absolutely challenging. Cafe El Torres CEO Dylan Miskowitz could relate. He needed to hire a director of coffee, posted his job on ZipRecruiter, found the best person for the role in just a few days. I'm not surprised. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, now that the new year is here, it's time to deal with all the stuff you never use. You should sell it on Mercari. Mercari is a selling app that makes it fast and easy to sell almost anything. Just take a few picks, add a description, and boom, your item is listed. Ring in the new year with less stuff in your home and more money in your pocket with Mercari. That is M-E-R-C-A-R-I. Mercari, the selling app, Super Bowl coming this week. Don't forget to listen to the Ringer NFL show against all odds with Cousin Sal, where I will be making an appearance this week, as well as the Ryan Rosillo podcast, which he'll be in Miami for the last two episodes of that. Check all of it out and check out theringer.com as well, where we'll be covering uh, football and sports and pop culture and a whole lot more. Coming up, my old ESPN colleague, Jay Adande, and I are going to talk about um, Kobe Bryant. Uh, we he did the Book of Basketball podcast with me. We did two Shaquille O'Neal podcasts about like, a couple months ago, and uh, did not expect that we would be reuniting for this. Uh, unfortunately, we are. So we're doing that, and then after that, talking about music and the future of it with Zane Lowe, Nathan Hubbard, and Joe House. That's all coming up first. Our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, my old friend Adande is on the line. We were together a couple months ago. We did a couple of podcasts for the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast about Shaquille O'Neal and ended up talking a lot about uh, Shaq and Kobe and never imagined that the next time we would talk, we would be here talking about Kobe in the way we're about to be talking about him. A couple of days have passed. I don't think um, I've ever seen a sports death like this, the way it's affected a city. We obviously we were young when Roberto Clemente died and how that affected Pittsburgh. And there's been other really sad examples, but I, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. And you grew up here, you wrote about the Lakers and covered them a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, just watching from afar, you're in, you're in Illinois right now. The impact that this has had on the city, how would you describe it? It speaks to the community that Kobe built, and that was one of his, his greatest attributes. He forged this this community of, you know, and it was, it was in some ways it was a subset of Laker fans, but because there were some old schoolers who maybe weren't as crazy about Kobe, but those who came up in the Kobe era, you know, those for for people for whom Kobe was the Lakers, and they grew up with Kobe. That that passion that that went across so many lines, you know, so popular with. Latino fans, Asian fans, black, white. And it just dawned on me today, I don't know if there's another figure who is as beloved in both Orange County and Los Angeles yeah. as Kobe Bryant. Those are two, you know, they're they're next to each other geographically, but two distinctly different zones. And yet Kobe, partly by virtue of living in Newport Beach, was loved down there just as much as he was in downtown LA. Right. You know, we saw it last summer when the Clippers 
they signed their guys and everybody was wondering what's going to happen. It's a two basketball team town. Could the Clippers take LA? And I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty adamant all summer. Like that, get out of here. That's the, the, you're talking seven decades of Laker fans at this point, going back to 1959. And they've been able to watch, I don't know, 10 of the best 20 guys ever in a Laker uniform at some point. I forget the exact number. I think Kobe, who had always wanted to be the best Laker of all time and never a hundred percent got his due from everybody for it. And I still don't know what the answer is, right? Because I think Kareem was the most talented Laker of all time. I think Magic's 12-year arc is better than anything Kobe did. I think Kobe had the longevity. And it was kind of, and then Jerry West, obviously, he's gone way back and the unbelievable career he had. And there was never a right answer for it. And I think where we're landing now is that Kobe was the most memorable Laker of all time. He was around long enough and touched all these different parts of the league and the franchise and played with all these different people. And I think when people remember Lakers, as crazy as this sounds, they're now going to remember him first. Do you agree with that? There's the recency. There's the fact, you know, look, I grew up with, with Magic Johnson. He's the reason I'm into sports, right? Not just that I got into Lakers. I don't think I would have cared about sports without Magic Johnson. Um, so to to me, he's a Lakers. Chick Hearn, for generations, the voice of the Lakers. Yeah. Right? Jerry Buss, the greatest owner in sports. You know, the common thread behind the, you know, the, the 10 championships, the last 10 championships that have been won for the Lakers. Um, but, you know, Jerry and, and Magic built the Lakers into something. Showtime made them bigger. But the thing is, Kobe had that platform. Yeah. And he took it to New Heights. And more people watched, right? The, you, you know, he, he came along at the time. There were more people. There were more uh, ways to watch the Lakers. Remember, the first five years of Magic's career, you really couldn't watch the home games. They, they used to have something called On TV. It was like this thing you attach to your, your television and you turn it on and you turn it to a, tune it to a certain channel. And they had a few select home games. But it wasn't until around 1985 when Prime Ticket, when now every single Laker home game in addition to the road games was on television. So think about that. But like the first half of Magic's career, most fans weren't watching half of his games. Yeah. So, you know, he just couldn't have as much impact as Kobe, who comes along, you know, in a full-fledged cable and on into the streaming era. Um, you know, so, so just the platform that Kobe had made him more accessible and I think made him have a greater impact. So regardless of who was better, the fact that Kobe might have meant more and might have touched more people, that's undeniable. And that's where I landed, too. You made the key point. There just weren't as many basketball fans in the 80s. And there was way less ways to watch Magic Johnson. I'll tell you that much. I was living on the East Coast. I saw him when he was on CBS uh, for the national games. And you saw him during some playoff games. But really until 84, they weren't even, all the playoff games weren't even really available. And then you think about the league's gotten bigger. The league's gotten way bigger globally. I mean, way, <laughs> way bigger. That's the understatement of the year. It's a hundred thousand times bigger. And then the social media reach and Twitter and Instagram and the ways we can connect to players now. And it was just, and again, magic helped it get there, right? True. He was on the dream team, the first international, but Kobe capitalized. Kobe was so huge in China, for example. Yeah. I, I remember the all-star weekend, 2011, we're sitting there in the press room, which was adjacent to the, the press conference room. And all of a sudden they bring Kobe in and they bring a bunch of Chinese, media members in 
And it's like off limits to the American press. It's like a Chinese press conference only. It was, it was Sprite. And they were debuting this new commercial. They played the commercials. Kobe and some pop star is huge in China. And then only questions from the Chinese media. And I was thinking, God, they must be paying him a lot of money for him to be doing this extra. But, I mean, it spoke to the global popularity of Kobe. And you think, I, I would have been really interested to know what his reaction would have been to the last two days. And I, that's part of the irony of death, right? When you have all these yeah. people paying tribute to you, you and talking about you. you yeah, you don't. And the message that keep that kept getting banged home over and over again was the Mamba mentality and, you know, just how, what a ruthless competitor he was and how hard he worked. And this was the stuff that he was trying to tell us for 10 years and he would do it. You know, sometimes it would be a little awkward. Sometimes it seemed contrived, but he really believed it. And I, I think what, one of the things that has surprised me in the last 48 hours, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because I've, I've talked to enough athletes over the last 10 years to make me realize that I had kind of misevaluated some of the stuff about Kobe, but the amount of athletes, even at the Super Bowl, which Kevin Clark wrote about for The Ringer this week, that seemed like they were infected and affected and inspired by Kobe. I wasn't prepared for that. Did you have any idea that that was the case? Yes, just because I'd seen what they went through with his retirement. And it really took Paul George initially for it to come into perspective for me. So the night Kobe announced his retirement, you know, early on in the 2015-16 season, they had me playing the Pacers that night. And I go up to Paul George afterwards in the locker room. I asked him what Kobe meant to him. And he said, Kobe was my Jordan, you know, for guys growing up when Paul George and that era grew up, they didn't have access to Michael. You know, he wasn't a daily presence in their lives the way Kobe was. When they turned on to watch NBA basketball, they saw Kobe. And it's hard for us, you know, Generation X guys to consider somebody being more omnipresent or more tangible than Michael Jordan, right? He was everywhere when we were growing up. Um, and Magic and Bird for us as well. But for these guys, they saw Kobe Bryant. And that was who they wanted to emulate. And so I think it's very easy for somebody 30 and younger to understand and relate. Um, it, it's any, one of my former students wrote to me and said, he played football. He played football in college. He said, I wasn't a basketball player, but I still took a lot from Kobe. You know, a lot of my attitude and my approach to the sport I took from Kobe. So absolutely it makes sense that, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers would be affected by this. Um, you know, and again, it also speaks to, as we talked about, the, the place of basketball. You know, I don't think a football player in the 1980s and certainly not in the 70s would have been, you know, learning anything and watching NBA basketball. But thanks to David Stern and Magic and Michael and Bird, you know, basketball had a place in prominence where it was something that could impact people across sports. Yeah, and, and you think about... uh you know, his, his concept of leadership, which I wrote about once in 2012, where he was just like, guess what? I'm going to be a ruthless motherfucker. And if you're, you're either with me or against me, which I don't know where you knew, you knew him way better than I did. I'm not exactly sure where he modeled that from. I'm sure at least a piece Michael, of it. Was, Michael Jordan, <laughs> like everything, yeah. But Michael never put thought into leadership. Michael was just like, I'm an alpha dog and you, you're either, you, I'm either going to run you over or you're going to survive. Kobe seemed like he had some massive 
you know, kind of platform that he was developing. Cause remember when, and I wrote about this when he did it, but when he did the Facebook post, remember in 2012, and it was like his version of the Jerry Maguire miss, uh, mission statement. And it started out, <laughs> leadership is responsibility. Next paragraph, there comes a point when one must make a decision. Are you willing to do what it takes to push the right buttons to elevate those around you? And it keeps going, keeps going. And then he goes, uh, part of leadership is pushing them to find their inner beast, even if they end up resenting you for it at the time. And then he says, I'd rather be perceived as a winner than a good teammate. Um, blah, blah, blah. Great things come from hard work and perseverance. This is my way. It might not be right for you, but all I can do is share my thoughts. It's on you to figure out which leadership suits you best. We'll check back with you soon, blah, blah, blah. But it really seemed like he, this was somebody that we thought was one of the worst teammates of the 2000s. And he was able to rehabilitate that a lot in 08 and 09 and 2010. And then he reached some sort of higher being of the way he thought about it. And yet everybody was still afraid of him. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Well, I, I never talked to him specifically about the origins of leadership. And, and again, I, I know a lot of it came from Michael and, and his style of play. And, and the one time that I talked with him, when he kind of willingly made the Michael comparisons, he, he usually, believe it or not, tried to avoid them and really didn't want to discuss it. But there was one time when he said, you know, Michael and I, we did it differently. And, you know, we were shoot first and we take on all five guys by ourselves. And a lot of people don't like that and they don't want to see that but that's just how the way we are. That's our style. So part of his approach to the game, and you know, it's directly linked to Michael. In terms of the leadership, again, Michael's style, but also I'm sure, I know he read a lot. He actually recommended a book to me one time. It's funny, just out of the blue. We're up in Salt Lake City. I'm trying to find out if he's going to play in the All-Star game because he's been missing games with his ankle. He had an ankle injury. And then he just says, hey, you should read this book. It's called Good to Great about business and leadership, but more about business strategy. And he said, I took a lot from it. And then he says, and if you tell LeBron and those guys about it, you know, I'll kill you. So don't tell them. And that just spoke to his competitiveness. Like he really thought that if LeBron read this book, he might gain some type of secret or, 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 or get an edge on Kobe. So he did not want me to reveal this book to them. So, um, I, I ordered it off Amazon and I read it and there were some things I thought, okay, I can see Kobe taking to this. And then there were some aspects of it that just seemed the complete opposite of Kobe's leadership style and, and business approach. And I'm thinking like, did he read the same book? Like what, what, Kobe didn't take, he definitely didn't take this chapter uh, right. to heart. But that, that was a little insight that I got into his approach and his methodology. It, it was just so random. We're standing in the hallway at, at the Delta Center or whatever it's called now. And he just gives me this book recommendation he wants me to read. You know, I really started to evolve my opinion of him as a basketball player, I would say in 2011, just having spent, I spent, I wrote a piece about spending a couple hours with Phil Jackson and talked to him a lot about Kobe and it became clear he didn't want to coach Kobe at the end of his career when Kobe wasn't a superstar anymore. And he basically said that in nine different mm -hmm. ways. And I was like, oh man, this, the, the end for Kobe, these last few years of his playing career are going to be rough. And then I remember I started doing countdown with magic and the way magic talked about Kobe and the amount of respect he had for him just as a basketball player, like just 
he's one of the greats. That's it. Like, like magic wouldn't even discuss it. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably taking the L on this one. And then when I I did a podcast (laughs) with bird and I asked bird, who's your favorite player to watch right now? My hero, Larry bird. And he's like, Kobe Bryant. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, all right. I'm, (laughs) I'm just missing something here. But then you talk to Durant and all these dudes. And it's like the old saying, the other players always know and the respect Right. that he had as a competitor and just an overachiever and somebody that was just going to work tirelessly. It did feel like that spilled over to the rest of the guys. And you could see it at the 08 Olympic team, the 2012 Olympic team. And now I feel like LeBron is the torchbearer, at least for that, for just hard work, perseverance, um, and incredible competitiveness. And I think it spills from him. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think we've talked about that, right? That you think you're among those who believe that LeBron picked up that work ethic from Kobe during the 2008 Olympics. Yeah, well, I, I, that, I do think he changed. probably picked up a couple a couple tricks, but it definitely affected all yeah. of those guys really positively. Yeah, you know, so spending two Olympic cycles with them, and the flip side of that is that it helped socialize Kobe. Right? Yeah, he, he was still a little bit socially awkward. You know, he really. More so than a lot of the other guys that went from high school straight to the NBA, he, he just missed that socialization process. And I think it, it was doubled down because he had spent so much time in Italy growing up, you know, maybe was kind of isolated or at least separated from American culture, right? So he didn't grow up in the same culture as these guys. Um, you know, he can't say he's from the same place that LeBron and, and Kevin Durant and those guys came from, right? So he, he was isolated and distant from them that way. Um, you know, and then they never went to college, never, never kind of had that, that thing where you're all in the same boat, you're all in a dorm, you know, no matter where you came from, now you guys are living, you're living in a, you know, eight by 10 square foot room, right? And um, so I think it wasn't until those Olympic experiences that he got more socialized in the NBA and was able to speak to these other guys as a peer and as a comrade. Yeah. And, and you know, even like All-Star Weekend. He was standing out. So it's funny. I, I, it's just connected to me now that the 2007 All-Star Game was before 2008 um, Olympic experience. And so he was still a little bit of an outcast. And one thing I remember from that weekend, so remember, it's Vegas. And like the game is Sunday night after 48 hours in Vegas. And everybody was just dragging. It was dreadful. If you think All-Star Games have gotten bad now, yeah. that had to be one of the worst All-Star Games of all time. Think about playing an All-Star Weekend after two days in Vegas. And... Kobe is going all out. He's defending guys, picking them up at half court, dribbling, playing. And you can see all the guys on their faces. And then even in, after the game and the interviews are kind of like, okay, Kobe, you know, if it matters so much to you, okay, have at it. Like, this really doesn't matter to me that much. It's just an all-star game. And Kobe's like, no, it's not just an all-star game. It's a basketball game. Right. If I'm on the court, I'm playing basketball the way it's supposed to be played all out. I don't know any other way to do it. And that became a big part of the legacy of how people discussed him the past two days. Somebody that went all out at all times and put as much possible into the craft. And, you know, look, we can go back to the first half of his career. And we talked about on one of the Book of Basketball pods, the 04 finals. He's not great and he's shooting too much and he's off the reservation in a lot of different ways. But then you think about the 09 and 2010 titles which I think are really impressive in retrospect that um, 
you know, that they were in three finals in a row, all the minutes that he played, especially when you had the 2008 Olympics and the fact that, you know, his second best teammate was Gasol, who is probably a Hall of Famer, but it's, it's certainly maybe once in his career was one of the 10 best guys in the league. And then Odom, who was so up and down over the course of his career and our test, who was just a complete wild card. And you think about, I had watched game seven, 2010 recently, Gasol's the toughest guy in that game, which seemed inconceivable two years ago when he was getting his ass kicked against Celtics. And our Ron Artest is the, the hero. Artest <laughs> is the hero. He takes the biggest shot of the game. And then think about, there's this moment near the end when I think they're up two and there's probably 12 seconds left and they have to inbound the ball and have somebody shoot free throws and the Celtics double team Kobe and it goes to Sasha. And Sasha goes to the line and he makes these two free throws basically to win the title. But Kobe had spent so much time mentoring that dude and, and, and being like, uh, you know, his, his Mickey and Rocky that Sasha goes and just nails the two free throws. And then he makes like the Kobe underbite face. And it was like, <laughs> it was like Kobe had created this alternate human being. And Sasha was the same guy who in the 08 finals, you know, was, was really fell apart in game four and got torched right. and all that stuff. But was that the comeback game? Yeah. The comeback game. It's just yeah. kind of, I don't think he gets enough credit. Um, including for myself for winning a title in those two years with the team he had. Cause I don't feel like it was that great of a team. And, you know, we mock him for, what was it? Seven for 29. I know, you know, the six for 24 like performance in game seven, six for 24. Six for 24. Okay. Yeah. And I knew you would know the numbers, <laughs> but um, you know, and I know you held that against him for a long time. Still do. But one thing I will say is that, um, you know, look at the rebounds and assists. Yeah. And, um, you know, he figured, he, he realized he's like, Oh my God, I don't have it. Yep. And I, I remember one of Michael Jordan's sons was tweeting like, look at this. Don't ever compare this guy to my dad again. <laughs> you know, my dad would never do this. And, um, it just became that, Oh my God, Kobe, just the moment's too big for him. And he said, okay, I'm going to start rebounding. I'm going to pass. I'm going to set other guys up. And then he started making some shots in the fourth quarter. But he found a way to win. He made, and that was kind of the old Magic Johnson way. Yeah, he made plays. It's it, it's actually a better performance than I remembered when I watched it because the six for twenty four, you know, that was what it was. But he is getting rebounds. He he gets he draws the biggest foul of the game in the final minute, and it's a really like physical. It turned into just like a man's man kind of game. Everything's in the paint, and it's a little reminiscent of the Pacers Bulls game seven ninety eight which just became like a street fight. And I think that game was similar to that. And he rose, you know, Rose's energy and made it happen. But it is crazy though. You think about, and everybody's been talking about his career and it's so funny. It's, it's not really different than the whole process we go through when somebody retires. Even Sunday night, you could see ESPN was rerunning a lot of the Kobe retirement stuff because right. it, when somebody right. retires, it almost does feel like a death in a terrible way. But, so many of his great moments, you think about like, it's the 81 point game. It's shooting the, making the two free throws after he tore his Achilles. Um, right. It's the 60 point game in his last game of his career. Um, a lot of them when, at, at the end, you know, they just replay that on, on ESPN. And at the end of that, he is just, he's, uh, he's exhausted. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those careers that if if you made the top 10 Kobe moments, a lot of them aren't actually like, oh yeah, game five of blank finals. You know, like his best right. playoff games were 
there was like a game one against San Antonio. Two games against the Kings. Oh, that, those two? Yeah. Yeah, on the road. You know, so Shaq goes for 40-20 back-to-back against the Kings. I I, I talked about this on the Shaq podcast. Yeah, we did. And then, yeah, Kobe, games three and four just goes nuts. I got to find out the list. So so after the 62-point, maybe it's the 81-point game, after one of those games that season, I kind of did. I said, you know what? Neither one of those are my favorite Kobe moments or the biggest Kobe moments. And I went through with him. I got him to comment on on each of the moments. I know one of them was the overtime game four against the Pacers in their first finals in 2000. Right. Um, the game seven of the the 2000 conference finals is remembered for his lob to Shaq at the end. But he led them in points, rebounds, assists, block shots. He led them in every major statistical category in that game. Um, that was another one. Yeah, those those Spurs ones, I, I, I just watched it again. Kevin Harlan's on the call. It's great. Game two in 2001, where he hits this dagger three. They're up four with a minute, 15 seconds left. And and it, it kind of showed the the epitome of how and why Kobe and Shaq were so successful together, right? Yep. So he's at the top, throws it to the wing, classic triangle offense. They throw the entry pass into Shaq in the low post. And both wing defenders, the Kobe's guy and the other guy, come down and, and collapse on Shaq. So Shaq has three guys around him, passes back out top of the key or, you know, right beyond the three point line and Kobe's out there and the, the defender doesn't switch back. So Kobe has time to like stutter step, pause, draw himself. And he fires a three and just boom dagger. And that was the end of the Spurs that season. They right. had a better record than the Lakers in the regular season. And the Lakers go on and beat them by 68 points in the next two games. And it, it was just a great, great moment. Uh, you know, just a, a dagger shot. Yeah, I would say in the finals, his best moment was that game four Pacers when Shaq fouls out and that becomes yeah. like, then then we knew he had it. I think there's one more men- moment that wasn't in like a finals moment that has to be mentioned in the top five for him was the 08 gold medal game where yeah. everybody yeah. kind of gets the deer in the headlights in Spain and the Gasols are just crushing everybody. And at some point, Kobe's like, I got this, guys, and takes over during this crucial three to four minute stretch. And from that moment on, all the way through, I would say, uh, until LeBron finally was able to take it in 2012 and become the guy and win a title. Right. It's Kobe's, Kobe's league from that point on, I think. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. It's, yeah. What's weird, though, only um, one MVP. And there was never... Other than the the 2006 season where he was just so individually incredible, there was never like that ass kicking run that I think a lot of the great guys have in that. I think that's why people have had trouble placing him uh, historically. Well, also he he played so many great years when Shaq was the better player. Yeah, you know, and, and through no fault of his own, it's not like Kobe wasn't great. He very well might have been one A, but Shaq was the guy. And, and Shaq was the focal point of those teams, but so many great performances came not even in Shaq's saddle, but alongside Shaq, you know, and some of the ones that we've mentioned, um, you know, that, that one where he took over in game four against the Pacers, Shaq fouled out. Yeah. And then it's up to Kobe in overtime to save the day. And guess what? He comes through. Let's take a break. And then I have a couple more things to hit. Hey, if you're one of the 26% of us adults, that's online almost constantly. You may want to ask yourself what you are sending and receiving online every day. Even if you only use password-protected Wi-Fi, cyber criminals may be able to hack your connection and steal your personal information. That's why you need Norton Secure VPN. It's seamless. Install it once. Log in once. Let it run in the background. 
use it with your PC, Mac, or mobile device, whether you're sending or receiving information over Wi-Fi. It uses bank-grade encryption to hide what you are doing while connected. Blocks companies from tracking your online activity and blocks those annoying ads that seem to follow you around on the internet. Help mask your online activities and location with the no-log VPN. Get Norton Secure VPN. Browse privately. Secure your connections today. Head to norton.com slash VPN Simmons. Protection starts at $3.33 a month for the first year. With annual enrollment, that's norton.com slash VPN Simmons. Terms do apply. Uh, one other thing. So I, I did a quick podcast uh, right after the news and we were so rattled and we just felt like we had to turn the mics on and talk about them. I think I had kind of forgotten the Achilles, not just for what a, a kind of moment it was, but also how it probably changed the course of NBA history a little bit because if he doesn't have that injury, I don't think physically he was ever the same after that. I, the stats back it up, the eye test backs it up, all that stuff. Before that happened, we were talking about 40,000 points for him. And we were talking about, could this person play for 25 years and all that stuff. And unfortunately he kind of had the, he kept the car in the red, I think a little too long that season. That was when he was playing those 48 minutes and doing all that stuff. And I think his body just finally gave out. But I think if he had managed that a little differently, do you think he would have retired if his body was still going? Cause I don't think so. If he could have caught Kareem, you know what else, Bill? The fact that he missed, he went through two lockouts. Mm. I don't know how many other players were around for both lockouts. Dirk Nowitzki, maybe. So he loses 32 games in the 98-99 season, which became just the 99 season. And then he loses, it was a 66-game season, right? In 2011-12. Yeah. So there's Compressed about too. 50 games. Yeah, that was yeah. the 66 so game season. Seasons, 66 game season that felt like 100 games with the schedule. Yeah. And then a, another 50 game season. So very, he's one of very few people that were around for both lockouts. And so there's about 50 games right there that he just didn't get to play. Um, injuries. He missed the first month of his rookie year. And, and then also the fact that he came off the bench his first two seasons. Right. Right. And, and, and had to play with Shaq. So by, by the end, by his last year or two, I think starting in 2002, he, he was scoring more points per game than Shaq. So Shaq wasn't a hindrance at that point, but you know, the, the hindrance just in terms of his personal scoring total of Shaq early injuries, lockout in 98, 99. So how many points were lost in that phase? Yeah. And then the 2011, 12 lockout. And then the, the, uh, the Achilles injury. So you're not only a a Laker watcher and probably the highest level of Laker followers just for knowing the team and knowing the surroundings, the whole thing, but you're also, you're at Northwestern, you're running the sports journalism program there and you're watching and reading this two days of Kobe coverage. And we kind of know all the beats that are going to happen, right? And we know there's going to be the little backlash stuff and that Colorado is going to become a factor in some of these pieces and how people talked about it and whether they're dancing around it, how, how, how much they feel like they have to mention it just from a journalism standpoint, what has it been like watching the last two days and how people are approaching this? It's less journalism and more social media is the problem, you know, and that's, that's kind of been reinforced and, um, 
people getting in trouble for getting ahead of themselves on social media, right? Yeah. And so many people were quick to tweet, let's not forget, as we're remembering Kobe Bryant, that he had a sexual assault allegation in 2003 and that he paid a settlement to make the civil suit go away and all that. Well, how about we read the coverage first to see whether or not the coverage has been deficient? I'm sure we're going to get to it. You know, there's going to be a lot of coverage of Kobe Bryant. Inevitably, it's going to come up. It's not going to be forgotten. Um, but I, I feel like if you read, if you take the time to read the full coverage, not just the tweets, read the full coverage, it's there. Um, in some cases, I think not as much as it should be. In some cases, the appropriate amount. I can't even remember what story it was. It, it just it mentioned it in the context of the Kobe and Shaq feud. It was really weird. It says, you know, and then he started feuding with Shaq, this and that. And then, to make matters worse, uh, right. there was a sexual assault allegation in 2003-04. And on to, you know, and then Shaq was traded. And <laughs> Like, whoa, okay, you can't just, you can't kind of yada, yada, yada that one, right? It, it, um, it, it's complicated. When we were on Around the Horn yesterday, we said, okay, we want to, we want to mention it, but it's very difficult because if you mention it, you can't just say it in passing really. Right. And, and you can't just say, well, the Colorado thing, you need to talk about it more. But if you talk about it a little, you kind of have to talk about it a lot. Right. So it, it's, um, and again, I, I, I'm, I, I like the way we wound up addressing it. Just Ramona mentioned it. She, Ramona mentioned all the bad things and she did it in the context of when she set up her last interview with Kobe, uh, Ramona Shelburne said, Kobe, if we do this, I'm going to have to ask you about the sexual assault charge. I'm going to have to ask you about the feud with Shaq. I'm going to have to ask you about, you know, all the accusations that you're a selfish teammate and you didn't get along with people. I'm, all that's going to have to be part of the story. And the way she mentioned that, guess what? It like it entered it into the record of our conversation. Right. So, yes, you know, for the record, we need to say all of these things. We can't act like Kobe was the saint um, who was right and did right 100 percent of the time. But to me, it's just about, are we going to let one year and one incident outweigh the entirety of his career and his life? You know, it, there, there has to be a balance. Have your students mentioned it to you and talked to you about it? Yeah, we talked about it in class today, actually in class yesterday. And then we wound up dedicating the entire 80 minutes with, with my undergraduates today. Uh, a lot of interesting thoughts. I, I think they were in agreement that it shouldn't have been the priority. Uh, they also thought it was a little ridiculous for the Washington Post to suspend the one reporter who just tweeted a headline or tweeted a, a link right. to an article about Colorado. But but also, it, that's the case where they were both wrong. And I, I read one story that criticized the New York Times. They look at their coverage here. There's no there's no mention of it. Well, if you looked at that, that was kind of a an updating blog. Right. And, you know, Kobe Bryant killed in the crash. And, you know, next update, nine others aboard. And next update, it was foggy that day. And, you know, the LAPD grounded there. So that was just a series of updates. You know, so if you're updating the story, a developing breaking news story, it's not an update to say in 2003 he was accused of sexual. And then later on on that page I was looking at, they did have a sort of a, an obituary or, you know, a bigger story about Kobe's life. And in that, Yes, it did mention 2003 and the sexual assault charges. So I feel like the coverage has been responsible. I question a little bit the need to jump out and to wave your hand and say, hey, make sure you talk about this. How about you 
allow people to talk about it, and especially at the appropriate time. Right. The news story of the helicopter crash isn't the time to talk about it. And if you're talking about Kobe, the father, and what we've seen of Kobe the last four years, I don't think you need to go out of your way to talk about it. There is an appropriate time to talk about it. It is something that needs to be talked about if we're discussing the totality of his life. What, but what about um, time and place? What about TMZ reporting that he was dead before the families were even notified? Because so it's interesting. I that I, one's tough. I too. laid that out. Yeah, it's a tough one. And kind of my take is that it's the journalistic right thing to do. Your obligation is to to your readers and to informing them accurately. You know, the problem would have been if they had misinformed, right? And if they said, oh, Kobe's daughter was aboard too, and she was. Actually, I guess they didn't report that. They, they just initially reported that Kobe Bryant was killed in the helicopter crash. But that was accurate. And that's the most important thing was they, you know, most importantly, you want to get it right. Ideally, as a competitive news person, you want to get it first. Well, guess what? They had both, and they were right. And it was within their rights to do so. If you have accurate information about a story of this magnitude, it is certainly within your rights. Now, you would like to think it would be nice if you could allow the, the family to, to learn from the authorities. I'm not sure if that makes it any better. Is, is there a better way to learn that story? No. When you think about it, you know, they, you know we, we think about the fact that, like, oh, they shouldn't have to find out that way. What is the good way? What is the right way to find out? Yes, yes I guess there's proper channels for that. And I can't imagine how shocking it would be to see something like that come across your screen. But is, is there a right way to find out? Is there a way, would it make it any better if they got a phone call from the sheriff's department or the police department? Does that make it any better? Ultimately, does that change how it is? Does, does, you know, if, would, would that have alleviated the grief at all? So I'm a little surprised, though, that all my students said, that they were okay with TMZ breaking the story before the family had been notified. Um, this was a class of about 40 students, and they all said, yep. And I tell them, I warn them, hey, if you're being a good journalist, sometimes being a, means being a bad person, you know, or an impolite person at the very least. Yeah. You, have to, you, you do have to do things like ask grieving widows, you know, to, to talk about um, the, their husband or, you know, a mother who just lost her son. That's not easy to do. You might have to call somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning, wake them up, and just say, yeah, I, I need comment on, on you losing your loved one. That, that's not nice, but it's what the job requires. And in this case, the job requires to inform people of a subject of tremendous interest, that we've, as we've seen. And they did it right. Um, might not have been the nicest thing, but they weren't out of bounds for doing it that way. It does feel a little generous. All my students agreed. I was surprised. I'm I'm not a surprise because I do think it's a generational thing. It's like this just happened. I want to know right away, and it kind of ties into where we are as a society now, right? Where th you just things are on your phone immediately, no matter what it is. There's no wait. We grew up when they were tape delaying the finals. It was 40 years ago. Um, so they, I was thinking of it. not only that. You know what's crazy? Imagine this. So you know when JFK was assassinated, there were no images of it, even though there was a Pruder film was shot. No one saw it publicly until Life magazine released still photos the next week. Right. And then the video wasn't seen until the moving images weren't seen until like the mid-1970s. They were like, can you imagine a decade after the president was assassinated and you don't see the footage? There's footage that exists and you don't see it until the following decade? That's just impossible. People want it 10 seconds from now. Now, you know, and there was 
there's video of the crash and it got shared with me and I, I, I wish I could unsee it. Did, did, did you see it? No, I, w- I, I wouldn't click on that. So somebody sent it to me and, and my problem was I was a little naive. I, I thought it would just be like after the crash and maybe you see smoke and fire, which would have been bad enough. Yeah. And it's actually footage of the crash. And I, I, I wasn't prepared for that. It's awful. And I, I, I hope I never see it again. Mm. Um, did you think they made the right move canceling the game Tuesday night? I think there's no right or wrong. To me, the biggest argument in favor of canceling it was that there's no easier game to reschedule, right? You've got yeah. two teams in LA and the, the, the good thing about this, the fact that it was a Laker Clipper game is that I'm sure there are 20 days between now and the end of the season where they'll both be in town and, and, and both be available. So to me, that that's what made the most sense. Like, I don't think they should have canceled games across the league. People don't understand how difficult it is to reschedule the game. Logistical challenges and the lengths the NBA will go to, to get a game in, you know, despite weather or any other circumstances, it's so difficult to reschedule a game that it really wasn't feasible to, to do so, to cancel games on mass over the weekend or today. And, I could understand this game. Somebody pointed out the Lakers didn't even put out a statement for the first day or two. I, I mean, teams they, all around the league, the NBA put out statements. The the NBA did, they didn't email out a formal statement. And I really think that the organization was just too shaken. I agree to, to even sit down and send out a statement. I think and, that's why you have I to cancel blame. the game. I I think it was too profound of a tragedy for that team. And I don't even really have any parallel as a Boston fan. We've had pieces of it, right? Like David Ortiz had an unbelievable run and Larry Bird had an unbelievable run and Brady's had 20 years, but didn't belong to the region like Kobe belongs to LA and how Kobe has stayed there after he retired. And he's just so omnipresent. I said on Sunday's pod, I always just kind of assumed he would be the one that got the Nicholson seats. Right. When Nicholson either stops going or whatever, it just seemed like he was going to be the torch bearer for the next couple generations of Laker games. And but I think he was conscious of not overshadowing these guys. And, and yeah, but when you get, you get older, it doesn't, yeah, I think you care less. Right. I don't maybe, know. Maybe once all the, the, the daughters were grown up and out of the house and he doesn't have anything to do, maybe, yeah, it would, it would come up and gone to the Laker games. Yeah. Um, the the last piece I wanted to talk about was the father daughter stuff, which I think was the most unexpected. I don't know what the right word is. Outcome of the last two days development, with, right? Yeah, just how that resonated with people, and I include myself. Um, and you know, I have one daughter that I've talked about a bunch of times on this podcast, and it's just a different kind of bond. And especially if they play sports and you're going to their games and um, you know, I identified a lot watching him even before what happened the last weekend. I, I definitely identified with how into his daughter's basketball career he was and how he basically builds this Mamba Academy and how much time he spent with her. And there's that great helicopter interview he gave, uh, that was resurfaced this week where he talked about why he flies helicopters or why he flies helicopters, where he was basically saying, you know, I'm busy. I don't have 
a ton of free time and I want to be with my kids as much as possible. And I looked at this and I assessed it and this allowed me to spend as much time with my family as I possibly could if I factored helicopters instead of cars. And, you know, I just seeing that stuff and reading that stuff for the last 48 hours, I just, I get it. Like, I, I feel the same way. I want to, I always want to be at my kids' games. I always want to spend as much time with them as I possibly can. And I think that really resonated with people in a whole different way beyond the death. And I, and I think it's going it, to be lasting too. It did. And it makes it even sadder. The fact that he was on his way to his daughter's game, that there were other families, parents and children, teammates on board. It made watching the replay of the 60 point finale game. Just yeah. crushing at the end because yeah. they keep cutting the shots of, of his wife and two oldest daughters cheering and applauding their daddy and going crazy. And just thinking that Gianna has gone to really hurt. And th there was a moment when th there was a clip of going around of, of her playing against him. It looks like at their home gym, right? And she kind of bodies him and then shoots a fall away over him. And I was thinking like, yes, that's such a Kobe move. Right. And we'll, we'll see Kobe continue through her. I had that thought for a moment and then I realized, Oh no, she's gone too. Yeah. And so the fact that we don't even get to see the continuation of Kobe, to see Kobe live on, you know, he has other daughters, but she was the one that played basketball. She was the one that emulated him in that way. And we could have seen that as we could, you know, we're clinging for anything now and we don't even get that. And and the fact that those, those clips of her at the Yukon game and how she wanted to play for Gino Oriema and she doesn't get to live out her dreams. And she just seems so dedicated. Um, it's that that's the part that really gets to me. Kobe got to do everything he wanted yeah. with the exception of seeing his daughters grow up. Right. But he lived, he lived a pretty, a more than pretty, a, a extremely full life in 41 years. Uh, the denial of Gianna and the other kids on that, on that helicopter to surface their dreams, the, the tragedy of him, of him, dying and those families dying in the process of being a good parent, right? Yeah. To, to die for your desire to parent your children. That's specifically what led to that, to that terrible helicopter crash it, it is crushing. And, um, even, even though I'm not a parent myself, I, I, I just see that. And, and it's one of the reasons this resonates so much. It, it's not just a loss of a basketball player as significant as he was in that regard, it, it's, it's the loss of, of a, of a parent with his daughter. <clears throat> and it, it, that, that's, that's the most difficult part to accept. Was it, did you feel the same way I did that the parallels of finding out about magic in 1991 and just the yes. complete shock and disbelief and thinking it wasn't true and waiting for somebody to tell you that, oh, actually there's been a mistake. It's fine. Only that never happened. It's, the, it's only happened a couple of times relating to sports. It's happened more times, I think, outside of sports, but it's, it's so rare to have that feeling in sports, especially with somebody so young, I think was the, was the real thing that made that push. And Bill, the, the weird thing is, is that this story won't evolve the way magic did. So it, it both felt shocking, but as it turns out, it wasn't the end for magic. No. Here it is three decades later and 
still going strong. It was so shocking because we thought it was the end. You know, we, we thought we were going to lose Magic Johnson. And then it was also shocking because it was an abrupt retirement, right? The, the one thing with Kobe is that he had already retired. Magic was still playing. He, he just played in the NBA Finals that year. Right. And so we had the abrupt retirement in addition to the shocking news, which we thought was going to be the end of Magic Johnson. And at this point, yes, I thought immediately back to, to Magic, but then I realized, well, this one's different. We thought he was going to die. In this case, Kobe is gone. Right. And so that, that was the twist, was that it was just as shocking as the Magic Johnson announcement, except that there's a finality to it, but, a, a real and actual tangible finality. Yeah, but I, I think that, that part's been lost with the Magic announcement, unless you're our age or around the same or older, where... It just seemed like he was going to be gone in a year or less because yeah. that's all we knew about that virus at that point is when you got it, you died. And, uh, and so I remember being just as bummed out and sad because it seemed like, well, he's not going to be here a year from now. Um, but yeah, it's same, same sort of just, oh my God, um, you're going to remember you were when, where you were when you heard it, all that stuff. And it's been just an awful week. I, I think this is... One of the one of the worst sports weeks in in my lifetime, and especially and and months, and the fact that the NBA lost David Stern too. Yeah, at the start of the year, right? You know these these two it, top five most important figures, certainly top ten. Yeah, top top ten or twelve, I would figures, say definitely. Yeah, in in the history of the league, and I, you know I I feel for my my friends that work in the league office. I've sent them some some messages just to lose two of those such important figures for a league that has been blessed with having so much of its history. You know, the fact that Bill Russell is still around, Kareem and Magic yeah. still around. So much of its history is still alive. And now we 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 don't have these two figures who, who weren't active, but yet still their presence was still very much felt as a part of the league, right? And now they're, they're no, we will no, no longer be able to to consult them and, and to to get their wisdom and their insight and their perspective. That's the loss for us as we go forward publicly. We, we, we ha- don't have access to their insight anymore. You know, that's a great point. I think the NBA is the one league where the guys retire, but they live on in a completely different way than any other sport. You know, you think about, I don't know, football, Joe, Joe Montana, John Elway, Barry Sanders, whoever, when they kind of show up, they're just like old retired guys, right? In basketball, and I think this is part of Stern's genius and and one of the things that he should really get credit for, he really made a concerted effort to embrace the past, recognize the past, appreciate the past, and continually bring those guys out and make the history of the league part of the present. And, you know, then it, then it hits the point with Kobe's generation where those guys are, are still a plus list celebrities after they retire because of their social, social media reach, you know, LeBron's going to retire. He'll be just as famous as he was when he played. Um, but I, I always appreciated how the NBA embraced that. And they looked at these guys as these people that carried the league to where it was. They took care of them and used them, as you said, as a resource that you could kind of go to and, and talk about history. And, and I think that's one of the coolest things about the league. I know it's one of the reasons I appreciate it. So to lose that. And, and they, they found a way to keep them connected, right? So magic, 
either television or his stints with the Lakers. Yep. Uh, Bird as a as a coach and an executive. Michael Jordan as an owner. So the fact that all these guys were in the fold, you have Shaq and Barkley on on TV all the time on TNT. Yeah, the continued presence, and then the genius of having Bill Russell present the the, the MVP, award every year, MVP award yeah. every year, and and just remember they they just had ambassadors. Remember they they would just have Bill Russell would just show up at a playoff game, or, right. or Bill Walton or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, and they they'd introduce them on the court for a team that maybe they had no history with whatsoever. Yeah, right? they'd be like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, here's Dikembe Mutombo. Welcome to Kembe Mutombo. <laughs> and th- that was smart too. And and then they would they would travel around the world in Stern's Global Vision. Um, you know, that's been great. And to think that Kobe, who was it felt like it was just enough, right? Like he wasn't overbearing, but he'd show up at a couple of Laker games, give LeBron a hug, um, you know, sit down and do an interview with Rachel Nichols or something. Like we he was around and then he certainly made himself available to whatever players wanted to to connect with him and learn from him, yeah. including, you know, there's, there's a couple of your Celtics, Jason Tatum, um, true. Kyrie Irving when he was a Celtic. So it, he, he was still present. And, and, and that's why it doesn't feel quite like he's gone yet. There's so much video of him. We've seen him on our televisions continuously yeah. the last couple of days. So in that regard, for those of us who, and I hadn't been around him the last, I don't think I've seen him in person since his last game, actually, but it still felt, very much like he's around and, and that, so in a way that hasn't changed yet. Well, and so it's, I'm, I'm still waiting for the loft to kick in because you think, Oh, we're never going to see him. Well, who knows when I was going to see him in person again. And, and I'm seeing him on my television continuously. So in that sense, I think the funeral will, will change it when that, that there's something, the finality of it. I don't know if it's going to be televised or, you know, if we'll see the casket, but um, you know, I think something like that will, make it seem real and, and we'll start to get the sense of the loss a little, a little more. Well, it's definitely, we'll be thinking about it during this whole Lakers season. And I, I yeah, I'm sure the fans are not going to let it go and they shouldn't because um, I think the outpouring that we've seen is completely genuine. Having lived here since 2002, um, the dude was beloved and I never totally understood it. Um, and I, I, I always kind of was able to assess it as an outsider, but I never questioned it because they just love the guy, you know, and through thick and thin, I remember going to the 06 that the year he averaged 35 a game when they played Phoenix and he had that steal when he like basically demolished Nash and got the ball and they had the breakaway. <laughs> and I went to that game with my dad and it was really exciting. We were rooting for the Lakers. It was, I think it was the only time in my life I ever rooted for the Lakers because that, Everyone well, was so into it. They were, they were, and people yeah. just were so into that Kobe comeback season. Um, and it was, it was really hard not to get swept up in it. He was, he, he just clicked with those fans and it, he's probably the only player in the league where it would have made sense for a team that just basically ruined their last two seasons in a row, just by overpaying a guy who wasn't a superstar anymore. Cause they felt like they owed him. They felt like they had to yeah. do it. I don't know if we'll see that again. It, and honestly, we probably won't see anyone play 20 years in the same city again, unless Steph Curry does it. I think he would be the last one. Yeah. I was, I was thinking like, who's even eligible, right? At this point, who, Curry. who could even potentially be And Steph Curry? That's it. You know, LeBron's moved around KD, all these other greats, Russ, even Russell Westbrook. Now, you know, there's no one who is eligible to be another Kobe Bryant, except for Stephen Curry. I think Giannis and Luca 
if they stay and the arc of their careers resembles what we're hoping it could be, they have a chance. If Giannis played at Milwaukee yeah, for 20 years. You're, you're right. And I think Luca, but it's too but, early for me though to even consider that they haven't even come into free agency yet. No, that's what so I mean. It's they, it's they ludicrous. Free agency and stay, then yeah, then 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 we can start to think about that. No, but I mean now, the re- the recent history of the NBA would say that those guys aren't going to stay there, and that's just the league that we have now. Is that nobody wants to stay in the same place for twenty years, and the grass is always greener at the next place. Curry's probably our last chance. Um, Jay, yeah. this was great. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing this. Say hi to all your students for me. And uh, I'm really glad we were able to talk about this. I, I really, you, you're the only person I really wanted to to uh, to go well, deep I, I dive on this. So. I, I wish I could say you're the only one I talked to. No, I know I, you talked to people. To a bunch of podcasts. And, and I wanted to make sure we, I did yours. Um, a, a it's, it's, it's a great show. And B, the last time was so Shaq oriented. And True. I think some, I, I know some Kobe people thought, oh, you're being so mean to Kobe. It just so happened to be that was the worst finals of Kobe's career. Right, right, right. And we were talking about those finals, but just like, again, we shouldn't have the 2003-04 year and everything around it stand out as the only part of Kobe's career. We need to look at it in totality. And so I was, thank you for having me on so we could address so many other aspects of Kobe's life and career and, and provide some balance. I appreciate it. Say hi to the students for us. Thanks, Bill. Take care. All right. We're going to bring Zane Lowe and Joe House and Nathan Hubbard in in a second. First, let's talk about Square. They make that little white reader that lets anyone take credit cards, but running and growing. As you know, it takes so much more than payments. That's why Square has built so many tools for you that can help like point of sale software, invoices you can send right from your phone, easy to build websites to help you sell online and access to business loans to help you manage your cash flow, purchase new equipment or whatever it is you need to do to grow your business. The payments are still best in business. No complicated contracts or weird fees. You get your money fast. The best part, These tools are all in one place and all built to work together. Whether you sell stuff on Instagram or a website, whether you're in a restaurant or retail boutique, whatever, Square has tools for you. See all the ways Square can take your business from square one to whatever's next at square.com slash go slash BS. Loans subject to credit approval and issued by Celtic Bank member FDIC. Okay, coming up, we taped this about a week ago. We're going to run it Sunday night and then we had to postpone that, obviously. So we're running it now. Zane Lowe, Joe House, Nathan Hubbard, talking about music with me. Here we go. All right, we're doing a little music roundtable here. It is Martin Luther King Day. Not sure when this is running. Zane Lowe. Hi. From Apple Music. Yes. Nathan Hubbard, unpaid ringer intern, once upon a time, ran a little company called Ticketmaster. And Joe House, who was once the Friday afternoon DJ at Holy Cross. Not only that, I was head of production. I I was a DJ for all four years, and I started on the 9 p.m., to 1 a.m. We, we all do, mate. So we got to do. That's, that's exactly right. That's we all back do. in the days yeah. when you don't, people paid their dues. If you don't, then you're not legit. You're not, and you're not serious. I was happy to do it. Well, you might be as serious, but you're not anywhere else. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, here's the agenda for today. The first thing, I've wanted to do this for a while on the pod. I am so confused and stupefied by the resurgence of vinyl records. And the fact that my son for Christmas wanted a vinyl player and wanted vinyl for Guns N' Roses and Metallica and all the rock music he plays with. And I had seen this happening for years and didn't fully understand it. But then we went to Newberry Comics in Boston. They completely changed the store. The basement of the store was all vinyl. And they're selling for 35, 40, 45 bucks. 
and there's dozens of people down there combing through mm. and looking for vinyl and bringing in the cash register. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> we were putting these in our attic 30 years ago. Um, Zane, you start. What is going on? Gosh. I mean, it's tactile and it's collectible and it's one of a kind. You know, I think we forget that every single bit of vinyl you hold in your hand has been made by hands. Like you think it's like mass distribution, but it's not. Like someone has to put that glob on there and make that piece of vinyl and make it happen. So I think it's as deep as that and it's as surface as it's just cool and holding it's just cool. And when you walk out and you have like four or five copies of something, it's perfect size. It goes under your arm. You can walk out. You kind of pick the one you want facing the street and the one on the inside toward the body. And there's a whole language to it. And I think kids are really into showing off, as we know. Right. And so they like the idea of holding on to something that kind of reflects their personality and their taste to some degree. You don't think crack CDs did that for them? <laughs> no, I don't same think way? they did. No, I don't think How's, they did. Do you believe vinyl sounds better? Because that's something a lot of people feel strongly about i have no idea i just know how my ears hear things i don't know how other people hear things but i was a dj at a radio station with vinyl records <laughs> i put the needle on the record and played the record and played it loud because this was you know the late, uh, late 80s early 90s good era to be a, a dj playing in, you know indie music and punk rock music and I know how those records sound to me, and I still have them. I still have my 250 records collected You've from that them. era. Yeah, of course. Of Smart course. career move. I, I have a theory about this, which is everyone talks about how vinyl sounds great, and it does. It, it sounds nostalgic, and we always long for things to feel and taste and sound a certain way from a certain time, right? But I, but I, I think that vinyl now, if you're pressing vinyl now— um, if you're making music in, in somewhat of an organic environment, if you are relying on tape machines, which people still do, or soundboards, which people still do, and you're using that and you're making vinyl, then yeah, you're going to get a lot of the breath and a lot of the room out of it. But I'm not sure, like I have a pristine copy of a little Uzi Vert album on vinyl. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to make much of a difference. That thing was made and compressed and done on a computer, which is going to squeeze it within an inch of its life. So I don't really know how much room there is for vinyl to kind of do its magic, but I definitely think white stripes sound great on vinyl. Because they were made Nathan. in that environment. There's a physical component to it that's missing. Like with Apple Music and Spotify, you lose that joy of bringing home that album, opening up the artwork, discover, reading through the liner notes, seeing that you know, artist, the bass player who you didn't know was on this album, who played on these other albums. And so there's something like physical about that that's cool. There's the audiophile piece for sure. We got the same thing with tickets. As they start to go digital, there's people who are like, you know, New York Giants season ticket holders who are like, I want my physical copy. How do I get it? Right. Because right. it's a piece of merchandise, something they put their hands on. There's the audiophile camp for sure. And then I think with our kids, it's just a way in, for the same reason that Forever 21 and Urban Outfitters has <laughs> Grateful Dead and, and you know, Zeppelin t-shirts all over the walls. It's a way for them to connect. For me, I love it because my kids are discovering music that I'm into. I, we talked about this on New Year's Eve, Zane and I. And I think part of this is the way this digital era has worked, kids don't actually have anything. Everything is digital and everything's on their phone and yeah. everything's through this thing. You don't cloud. actually have anything to hold. And like we, when we left Newberry Comics and my son has his three albums and he's holding it and he's showing people. And <laughs> it sounds stupid, but I don't think there's a lot of avenues for kids to do that anymore. Everything yeah. is kind of exists in this little imaginary weird world where like your son, your son's nine. Yeah where he's ordering 
uh, apps on your phone for yeah. two ninety nine a pop. Roblox. But he's not. He can't show somebody the apps. <laughs> no. He can't be like, hey, I bought this nah, new it's, world. It's like a short term bump of adrenaline or something or joy you get, and you know, depending on who you talk to, I have friends of mine who long. For for this time of everything is is this kind of touchable, collectible thing. And I have friends of mine who are my age who are genuinely like, no, 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 get with the program, trains at the station, get over it. And it, it, it makes for an interesting life for me because I can see both. Um, I'm into the efficiency of it. I'm into the time management of it. I like to get what I want. Actually, as a music fan, and I think what you're saying, Nate, is totally true. But actually, as a music fan, I discover way more streaming services than I ever did before. Me like, too. I sure. dive in every morning and I'm like, maybe I don't want to hear what came out last night. Maybe I just want to go and listen to The Grateful Dead for the first time because I never did. Yep. So it's all there for me to dive into. But I do think that kids are now starting to further to your point. I mean, I don't know. I can only speak for my kids and my kids' friends who happen to be your kids, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is cool. Brings us together to have this conversation. I, I just think that they are kind of searching for things that um that they can carry with them, as you say, and hold on to. And and I mean, you know, I was going to give Ben some vinyl the other night because I got a little bit stacking around, and I was like, but the only one that I wanted to give him was Nevermind because I kind of didn't want to part with him myself. <laughs> right, right. So I said to him, "Do you have Nevermind?" He was like, "I got that one." I was like, "Oh well, <laughs> next time." That, that takes care of it. Well, <laughs> one thing I like about it is it forces <laughs> guy. It forces our kids to actually listen to albums. Because I was worried that they, that my son's whole generation was going to be the playlist generation. Now, nah, they listen to albums if they love the yeah. artist. If they buy into the it's the same as it's always been. If you buy it, you either buy it or you buy in. Mm. And if you buy it, yeah, you know, I'll listen, I'll throw it away. It is what it is. We buy stuff all the time we don't love. But if you buy into it, a brand, a designer, an artist, an actor, you'll see every one of their films, you'll buy every one of their records, you'll hunt for the new drop because you bought into it. Can you know? I ask uh, a music professional? <laughs> I'm looking at Zane. Um, do, do artists in this era still compose albums, records, the way that in the era that I was growing up where there was a beginning, middle, and end, yeah. there was a sort of uh, uh, narrative to it. There's a uh, informing thesis we want you know, to open yeah. this way. Does that still happen? It does. And, and I mean, I can't say every artist because some artists love the whole modern distribution approach. Right. And sometimes it's both. I mean, Coldplay are like, we want to do it this way this time. And the next time they're like, we might want to make an album. And by the way, Coldplay are like a deceptively creative, like forward-thinking band. Like the biggest trick they played on everybody is that they're this meat and potatoes experience. They're actually quite adventurous. So they'll try all sorts of things. But then more artists that I'll speak to than not, will approach an album still with that framework that is timeless, right? And, and that kind of speaks to that whole argument of, is the album dead? Like, all right, cool. So you can get your music and distribute it however you want. That's great. I want to make playlists all day long. But if as long as artists want to make a body of work that lasts 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes long, because that's what they have to say, then the album will get made. And if it doesn't exist in its own format as the only way to hear it, like it used to, maybe it's just like... Maybe it's less of a meal and more of a meze. Okay. So it used to be a meal would be like, eat what's on the plate. Now it's like, here's a, like a wooden board with a whole lot of food and you can pick and choose what you put in your pita bread. But the artist still wants to put all the food on the board. Does that make sense? It well, feel, the length of albums kind of went sideways. I feel like that was like an analogy to no, I like <laughs> The point you made resonates in the context of Nevermind, for instance, right? right? Because that, that, that record um, that came out in 91, 92. No, okay, 92. Um, for sure, still to me has a cohesion to it, yeah. and has a beginning, middle, and end that all makes sense, and they all 
all the songs play off of each other. But so does Billie Eilish. Yeah, well, and trust me, her and Phineas made that album from A to Z with the, un, designed for us to consume it in that environment. Oh, wow. Is that going to win album of the year? I think it is. I think she'll be the first, and man, I don't want to get this wrong, I think she'll be the first debut album artist to win album of the year at the Grammys since. Anyone? Anyone? Toto. No. Close. Super close. Christopher Cross? Yes. Your guy. <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Cross. Nathan's guy. I bought his house. You know how I know I that? Because I was nominated for an album of the year once. I wouldn't have been now. They've changed the rules. I had one song on the album, so I qualified back in the day. And uh, we didn't win. Because I looked it up. I was like, this was Sam Smith. It was his debut album. Oh, wow. And it was like, no Sam one's won Smith. a Grammy for album of the year since Christopher Cross. I was like, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. There's no way we're winning this. Well, they want him to be the last one. It's like when Michael Jordan, yeah. you know, you want him to be the last guy. I was looking for some Christopher Cross to play as we talked. Oh. Has to be. Yeah. It Always. has to be. Always. I mean, this is why we call it Yacht Rock, right? Yeah, because it sounds like you're on a yacht. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, but the problem is you blew it. You, when you start that song, you can't not play that whole song. I know. So, I want to hear it. So I think Best starting the solo. mid-90s album start to go sideways with the link. Because I remember like, all right, so we go to Counting Crows, 94, right? That was an album that really had a beginning, middle, and end and a feel. And I felt like I was going to a place and they were trying to tell me something. And then we were talking about the Smashing Pumpkins, their second album, or the second big album, Melancholy, mm. which was a double album and was really two different albums and they put way too many songs on it. Totes. But as the years pass, everybody has their own version of like the best eight or nine songs yeah. on that album or whatever. But that was when it started, the wheels started to come off. And you could see it with rappers too, where they would just do these double albums, but there's so much crap on there and you'd have to find the four. And we lost our way. I would love to see the concept of 10 to 12 songs. I put some thought into why I put these together. Really come back. Maybe Billie Eilish will bring it back. Yeah, I mean, she kind of did. And I think, you know, Frank Ocean did. I mean, his album was pretty True. tight. And there are artists who like to keep things. Watch the Throne, through. I felt like was like that. That was perfect. Yeah. That was perfect. That record was perfect. And even 444, right? The Jay-Z album was kind of like, you could get what you needed. Everything was set up to, the, the, it needed to be said. So. Was that I mean, the one, that's the one that came out? As the last one. That was the most. And you're like the biggest fan of that one, and you uh, feel like it's the lost. Well, I just feel like, I feel like that is the first. That, I would own that on vinyl for sure, because I feel like that is the first real rap album that addresses life outside of I need a banger, or I need a smasher, or where's Just Blaze, or where's Metro Boomin? I need a hit. Jay Z was like, hmm. So my wife's made this album that talks a lot of, of truth about our situation. I need to make that version myself. But to do that, he had to take rap music into like Bob Dylan territory, you know? So to me, that is like a hear my dear or a sort of like blood on the tracks for hip hop. And he didn't really bend over or, or try to sort of um, patronize anyone by make, putting a hit in the middle of it. It was just like, love this or don't, I have to make it. Is it available on vinyl? It should be if it's not. Is there any doubt that right now the best writers in the world are huddled in a garage trying to figure out how to get Beyonce album of the year? <laughs> Either that or Rihanna. What's it going to take? Yeah, I know. It's true. It's crazy how she hasn't got that. It's absolutely bonkers. And I think every year she doesn't win it. Not only does it put pressure on, I'm sure, her and her team, but it puts huge pressure on every artist that wins it. Right. Because, I mean, like, there'd be a great montage of artists who've gone up and won album of the year the same year as Beyonce and, and apologized. apologized. I mean, that's a montage. That's a four and a half minute exceptional montage to watch. Usually for good reason. Of course. The albums are always phenomenal. Lemonade is, in my opinion, her best record. It's like when golfers win a major that Tiger finishes second 
<laughs> and they just feel bad. They robbed America of a great moment. <laughs> I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I took this from Avi. Yeah, yeah. So where does vinyl go, Nathan? Does I, I, it gain steam or is this a fad? I don't. I'm in, I'm in Zane's friend group that just says digitization changed my life musically. Subscription changed my life musically. I think it's not That's a fad. I felt. But I just think it's, it's, it's an example of how artists can and get to find ways to create physical productions and representations of their art, whether that's through merchandise, whether that's through vinyl itself. I think for the younger generation, it's just a badge. It's a physical present badge. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think there was there's a few facts kicking around about vinyl. Everyone's talking about it right now. I mean, you know, this is the perfect time to have this conversation. And there was a fact I heard the other day, which was that it sales had crossed a million copies in one week at Christmas for the first time in a long time, like a very, very long time. And, um, and I thought about that for a second. And first of all, it was like Harry Styles was manufacturing. Billie Eilish was manufacturing. So these young artists were manufacturing for young fans. You think about it, it makes total sense. It's Christmas time. So, you know, parents get that Harry Styles vinyl. I bought the, the Styles album. Exactly, yeah. on vinyl for their kids, right? And it's like, oh, cool, soof, bump. So there's that. That's positive. The other positive thing is they're saying that it's going to outdo CDs eventually, which because CDs are just falling off a cliff as vinyl right. finds its thing, right. which is the ultimate kind of fuck you <laughs> from vinyl's point of view. Right. If vinyl was a human and CD was a human, right. vinyl's been sitting waiting for a long time for this moment, to get, right? To get the revenge. <laughs> to get the revenge, right? So that's happening. But then, you know, I think everything's going to slow to a degree. So we'll see. You know? I it, never collected vinyl. I was, a, when I started buying music in 82, is that there was an eight track year? Had some eight tracks. Did you own eight tracks? I did. What did you own? <laughs> I remember the first one I ever bought, I was like 11, was Hall & Oates H2O. That must have been funny. What did 8-Tracks yeah. sound like? I had sticks. Not great. I had sticks. I don't remember. The great band. The first six record. Great band. But then the CDs kind of took over, but, you know, and well, then hang cassette, on, there was a huge cassettes. era in between 8-Track <laughs> yeah. and CDs, just as an FYI. Like, I'm not sure what you were focused on, but there was a lot. Like No, but there was cassettes, but the I forget when the Walkman came out. It was probably somewhere the Walkman in the had 80s. a decent run. Yeah. I had about 12 of them throughout <laughs> my life, so, yeah. you know. I don't mind it existing as a format because it's a constraint, right? One of the cool things about Twitter with 140, 280 characters is it— Con yes. It forces you to condense and edit. Yes. And vinyl, it because of just the physical nature of it, means you can't put an 18—you can't criticize the Taylor record, probably. But if it was four songs shorter, it would be even better than it is, in, in my opinion. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I, you know, I think, you know— there's Why a, can't he criticize and, and the, the Spotify, Taylor? Well, maybe was he, he can. robot? No, but the, 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 <laughs> listen, this, the, the, again, the, the subscription service allows you to put out an 18-song record without really having to get—but which one am I going to drop and what am I actually trying to say? So I like yeah. it as a format there because Harry Styles just made, I think, a great record. Yeah. It's short, it's concise, and yeah. it fits on vinyl. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what happens when you release your first solo single and it's a 21-minute prog rock meandering right. <laughs> slow song. Right. You learn your lesson pretty fast. Right. You come back right. with some punchy tunes that right. come clocking about 40 minutes yeah. in total. You can still be David Bowie, just not like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I wonder if there was a way you could have CD and vinyl in the same kind of album. Because you just make the big-ass vinyl, but also just stick the CD, like press it on the corner so you could have either or. Well, you slide it inside the vinyl yeah, something. thing. Like, like you, we like, were, you got mad at me on New Year's. Like a retro tufa? Right. You got mad at me when I was saying how CD actually just needs to 
copy vinyl albums how they look, but then just put the CD in. And you're like, no, that's bullshit. I've drunk a you lot can't of tequila do that. by that point. But yeah, yeah. I, nobody's going to buy a big ass hat and then you just yeah, say, no. that's a little problem tiny with CD. drinking with Bill right. is he remembers what you don't. And <laughs> that's right. sucks. No, you he mean, doesn't right. drink enough. He doesn't drink enough. I know. But he acts like he's keeping up with you, but he's not. <laughs> that, first of all, not true. Second. <laughs> 100% true. Second, um, it did make me think like you could increase the and improve the CD packaging. Why do you want the yeah, CD you want to grow? grow? You, you're CD really lining in on I'm trying CDs. to say CDs. I, but 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 the record players, CDs. <laughs> the okay. record player is just a piece CDs. of art for, for my daughter's room. That's really what it True. is. The CD yeah. was never up. And in the, same, in the same way, yeah, the vinyl, what's the cool thing about like my parents' Barry Manilow vinyl album? It's that when you put it on, it's just this big ass face rotating around and around <laughs> and around and around. And I could watch that for hours and crack up. Like it's a piece of art. That's all it is. The CD isn't. Think about when the CD came through. I remember when my dad for Christmas got me a CD player and it was like a huge deal. Right. And I think I love my dad to death, but it was probably around the divorce. So he's feeling bad. So we really shelled out. So he got me something rad for Christmas and it was one of the first CD portable CD players on the market. It, it was literally like it was as heavy as a breeze block, but it was small, but it was very heavy. So you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of tech packed into this little, you know, compact thing. And I remember I said to him, I don't really know what you know, I've heard of this. Like, I'm excited. What is it? And he just would not stop going on about the sound quality, the sound quality. So the CD was the sound quality was revolution, right. right? It was the moment when all the other formats that had tried to improve the sound quality, someone decided, somebody probably, not to be all conspiratorial, but somebody probably decided that, you know what, we need format change here. We need everybody to buy their Led Zeppelin records again. And what's the biggest way to get people off vinyl? Well, we can make something sound better and we can get more music on it. So those were the selling points for the CD and it lasted for a long time. You missed two p crucial parts. Of Which one? Cars. Yes. Good point. Could throw it in the car. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm going to say maybe later 80s, was the first time cars started having those, and it was like, holy shit! I feel and like then you started buying the CD albums. I feel like that was like a, oh yeah, we can do that too. Yeah, yeah, but that was a couple years after. Yeah, that was one. It was meaningful though, like the, the was sound meaningful. quality inside of an automobile. Oh yeah, it's like unbelievable. And then skipping, and being like in our room in college, and put the CD in and be like, I'm gonna play songs one, four, seven, ten, eleven. Both it was very, like the early very playlist. Good points. Both right. exceptionally good points. Um, he never mentioned those to me at Christmas. He just went, this yes. quality. But I, I wasn't but, in the right frame of mind. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know, man. I just, I never looked at a CD and went, yes. Even when it was like multiple gatefold, turn it up, like Tool. Like Tool made a lot of the CDs. They probably spent a huge amount of money making the cover of the CD serrated so that it would do like you, with three different images or two different images depending on how you held the CD and right. what angle, right? That's an expense. That's like cutting into your profit margin. They did that because they tried to make the CD something artistic and something creative. Still cracked. Still broke apart. CD still got scratched. Shit still Much got easier lost. to steal. Might have stolen a couple CDs from say, Sam Goody's. What yeah. is this confession? Before uh, they did, before they did the big long case over the CD, and they were just in the ice. Come on, especially during the winter in Boston. That was Connecticut, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but that that vinyl you can't steal. Where are you taking that? Up, up your shirt. Do you think it's weird to see <laughs> hip hop? Like Ben has Juice World as one of his favorite vinyls. It's weird, and it's just like ah, that. I get it. It's just strange. It's look, I mean, Ben has Juice World on vinyl because Ben wants Juice World on every format. Because Juice World's like and same with Lucci. Juice so, World's like the the artist. Juice World's death was like oh. a huge thing with our yeah, kids. Like they they my son did a, a Instagram post littered with misspellings about it. 
Same um, with Lucci. I mean, look at the end of the day, they're young, they're too young to be able to spell the big words required to really express how they feel on an emotional level, but they're not too young to feel it. So they felt it. I don't want to like throw my kid out in the open on his feelings, but it was a big moment. And um, and not the first one either. Nah, man. Because you're looking at a, a bunch of these dudes have gone in the last bad. year. It's really bad. And I mean, as someone who is fortunate enough to still have conversations with exciting contemporary artists who are on the way up, more exciting than ever to do that, by the way, because it happens real fast. You know, Juice World went from a SoundCloud cult artist to Apple Music's breakout artist of the year in the same year. And he was, so, I thought he was legit talented. Oh, yeah. I was a huge fan. Oh, and all you got to do is listen to the artists coming now and see how far his influence is going to continue to spread. So, you know, it's exciting, but it's super sad. And like, you know, you're watching people like that pass away and it's like, man, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, obviously this weekend when we're recording this, Max album's just dropped, you know. And that's a different kind of tragedy because Max struggled with things, but he was on the, he was good form at least to my experience and the people who knew him he was in great in a great space he had a bad moment you just lose these great artists and it's like wow but you know we had the same kind of parental sad. thing with uh when both of our sons got into x and they were really sad when he died and he was like not a great guy but he made music that yeah. they really liked and they were 11 they're like i don't care if he's a good guy or not i just like his songs well they i'm not here to morally judge people they, well they care they knew i mean I can, they I just, knew but they didn't they knew and they were aware and they were aware that morally there was some stuff going on there that they didn't buy into so it was important that like we don't censor the music in our house to the degree outside of key cornerstone bad shit like mm, yeah. racism homophobia mm. you know if it's really abusive and really aggressive like it's like nah we check that making fun of New Zealanders we don't yep. we don't stand for that shit you know what I mean um, but but you know so we so we try to be responsible we try to be open minded with X it was like look I acknowledged the quality of that music. And I was, I had to separate myself from the individual that was being written about that had supposedly done these things versus the music that I was hearing. And those two things are often interconnected as well. Well, this has been going on for decades. Right. I mean, we had to rewrite the David Bowie. The Michael Jackson story. Right. There's, There's a lot. There's so, a couple, so, you know, Michael Jackson, what happened? <laughs> that was in between eight tracks and CDs, <laughs> bro. You know, you missed it. <laughs> missed it. Something yeah. wrong? It was yeah. the car. That's so that's a, that's a tough one, you know, and, and, and not to get caught up in that because it's a complicated conversation and depending on who you talk to, that can get in, intense. But, you know, the kids... Our, our kids recognized he wasn't someone to follow as an individual, but as an artist, the music really moved them, really moved them. And um, I think that that was a you know, a confusing place for them to be. And then when he was taken so violently, it's like, that's heavy for kids. That's hard. That's hard to imagine. And then in this day and age where that imagery is flowing around the internet and showing videos of him in the car and all this sort of stuff that yeah, you gain access that. to now, you know, and it, it's just very, very, you've got to keep a really close eye on kids at moments like that because... They don't forget that stuff. They don't lose those images. It's rough. It's rough. Or they've just been desensitized since they were like seven. God, I hope not. God damn the internet. I hope not. I hope not. The Billie Eilish thing, I think, has been the most surprising thing for me the last 12 months. Not, not just that the songs are good, but she kind of fits the era. And they really, they really respect things about her. Like, I don't remember respecting the people who made the music when I was a kid. Maybe I was just raised poorly. We but, know we had we grew up with a lot of terrible music. Well, that's true. Wait, what decade though? Are we talking about? We're the talking eighties. Eighties is late seventies, early eighties. No, but like what was eighties is ferocious. The, what the radio was was populated with when I was you know. And well, I mean, 
It was both. It was a combination. Cause we grew up with Michael Jackson and Prince, which are yeah. both pretty fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there was a whole kid I'm going band the other thing. way. I, I think 84 was was really kind of legendary. It's if you look at time. all the great... It's a great time. I think time. we lucked out. I'm talking with, at about... At least from pop You had on one standpoint. hand, you had Nathan's the Smiths, a, but then you had the... Then you had Prince, but then you had Simple Minds, who were huge. Yeah. Like, one of the biggest bands in the world. Like, it's weird to go back and think that New Gold Dream was a massive album because <laughs> that is a strange, very strange synth-heavy record, you know? I may or may not have watched the entire 1986 Prince's Trust concert on YouTube. <laughs> well... A couple of days ago. That's a random one. <laughs> and who played? Level 42, Something About You. It's like. Big song. It's just really good. Big it song. Would, that song could come out now and it would like kill. Big and song. Howard Jones comes out and plays No One Known Is to Blame with like Phil Collins is on the drums. Yeah, man. It's unbelievable. There's a, it, it's basically all the best people from the mid 80s. I'm, t- I'm talking about just a, a class of music no, that was saying. popular music. Yes. The Debbie yeah. Gibson, the, I, I mean, I'll kill new kids. I don't give a shit. Fuck new kids well, on the block. Well, that's later, though. Yeah. No, that was the 80s. Late that was 80s. Like late, that's late Seven, 80s. Yeah. Late 80s, yeah. the wheels came off. And that's why, that's when House dyed his hair purple. Oh, what? And got into the DC punk scene. And that was like that's a, how I met 83, House. 84. Thank right? God. Went to you know. Fugazi shows. And- yeah, I mean, 87 was We Fugazi used to make fun of House because he loved Fugazi and Nirvana in like 89. Well, and you we were, were like, what the fuck is this stuff? House had the last You laugh. were so wrong. You know, my uh, Fugazi used to love New Zealand. They would tour there quite a lot. And they would uh, they would take my friend's band Salad Days out on the road with them. And The um, name of the band was Salad Days? Yeah. Which is an iconic minor yeah. threat song. Yeah, that's right. So, so they called Salad yeah. Days. And so they would take them out on the road and, um, and, and my friend, and Karen tells me stories about how, you know, um, they would go around to the motel where Fugazi was staying because it's all legit, like super independent. Like they're the only real band that could truly claim independence in that era. They're the only one who truly can. Like to this day, literally everything was coming out of their own pocket and they would cook. You wouldn't say R.E.M.? I mean, R.E.M. No, stayed R. like a free agent. One of the biggest record deals <laughs> but of that all was in time. Like 94. Was like $90 million. Yeah. yeah, but that was at the end though. And the, in the 80s, they, they were that, pretty independent. They were still on Copeland's record label. I'm talking Fugazi were like, they had their own label. They, they drove themselves they booked their own tours everything was a cottage industry right and they would and they would they would cook for salad days they would cook for the support bands as they come around we'll cook your vegan meal da, 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 da. that's so I mean, I mean it's amazing yeah that's why we called house the vegetarian communist you freshman year you didn't put that on my door that's true yeah Just take it as a compliment I, I mean I, I i rolled with it we didn't we left it up Let's take a break. Talk about Crown Royal. Last year, Crown Royal launched the first off-the-field water break to encourage fans of the game to monitor and hydrate to stay in the game, whether you're watching in the stadium, watching at home, or in a bar. Have a great time. Enjoy some Crown. Don't be that person that ruins it for everyone. Make the right call and take a water break. All right, so who made the right call this week or not? I am going to go with somebody in this podcast. Zane Lowe predicts during this whole conversation we had more than a week ago that Billie Eilish was going to annihilate at the Grammys and win everything. And in fact, she won five trophies and her career soared, her album scored. She she also, um, she made Grammy history as the first woman and second artist ever to win the top four categories in the same year. So there you go. Zane Lowe. It's almost like he knows something about music. Crown Royal reminds everyone this football season and music season to take a water break and moderate to stay in the game. Back to the big conversation about music. Here we go. Come back to Billie Eilish, though, because yeah. the thing about her for me that I'm still trying to figure out is the source of her like creative art and inspiration. There's so many artists who you see who've had, even at a young age, I mean, we know what we know about Bieber now, 
and, and some of the things that drove him from a family perspective. With her, she comes from such a good home. Mm. I, I it, It's just astonishing to see someone so young mm. with such just g- given from above that creative talent. It just hasn't seemed to be spurred by her life experiences. It's yeah. just something innate to her. It's crazy. And I mean, that's the magic. That's the magic you'll never truly be able to kind of see. That's the real stuff, you know, and you, you can put, you can paint the picture to a point. You can see it like, okay, homeschooled, um, focus on music and the arts, really great, you know, parents who, who get them focused on taking it seriously. So it wasn't just a hobby, you know, natural born talent, brother, sister, great chemistry, yeah. all that stuff is perfect. Yeah. Um, then factor in that they're like of an age with an, with a generation of an age that are exposed to more information than ever before. And I think that like when I was growing up, I used to look the hardest thing. Okay. Check this out. We get to a point now we're all about the same age where our heroes are only five to 10 years older than us. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. We're making that realization like lately, like, Oh, I'm like, Oh wow. You're only 52. (laughs) When I was a kid, you seemed like the most grown up human being on the planet. And the reason for that is because that five to 10 year gap was the, was the life experience. They, they told us through their music. We didn't have access to it because we didn't have phones, computers. All we had was NME. And for me that arrived six weeks late because it got, had to be shipped over on a boat. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm learning everything through these records. Kids now know everything Billie Eilish knows. So she's connecting in a very real way with people going through the same thing. The stuff you can't put in the picture, the stuff you won't get on that montage on the board is that the, the black area that you will, the, the space you won't be able to fill is that stuff you talk about, which is where it comes from and how she's able to be so eloquent and paint these pictures because the pictures that they paint and that allow the performance to be as amazing as it is, that's the good stuff. That's, the, that's why we all buy into it and our kids buy into it. I think she actually... There's some genius elements there that are going on. No, and there's no. a there's a pain that she's tapping into that's unclear how she's totally. even feeling pain when she's had a pretty great life, but obviously she has some you know, I stuff love, going on. I love what Dave Grohl said, you know. He was so smart when he said it, when he was like, she's Nirvana. Now, he didn't say she's Kurt. Right. In fact, I have to be careful what I say here because he asked like the comment to be paraphrased properly. He was very specific. So I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm kind of paraphrasing Dave and what he said. But the general gist of his comment was like, she's, got, she's tapping into the same generational movement that Nirvana did, which is so many factors at play. And you can't bring Kurt into it because Kurt is Kurt. Kurt's not Nirvana. Kurt is Kurt. Kurt wrote, sang those songs from Kurt's perspective, and he's just so unique. But what Nirvana represented was those two, three, four years where the whole world was moved by that music. And that's what Billy and Phineas have tapped into, I think, in a big way. And there's one other piece to it that I think is really fascinating. The way that our kids see gender and sexuality and what they're growing up with. Definitely. She embodies that. Like she's basically wearing a potato sack when she's out. She doesn't, yeah. she doesn't want sexuality to be anything about how people see her. Doesn't want to be seen that way. She almost wants to be amorphous. And that is what we're seeing. I mean, granted, we're in LA, maybe things move a little faster here, but the way that my kids talk about this stuff as matter of factly is constantly amazing to me. They don't want they the don't pressure see of it. see anything. They don't want the pressure of it, right? It's a lot of pressure, you know, to try to live up to your peers, the expectations that even your peers set for you now that kids your own age said for you now. And they don't want it. Like a lot of kids don't want it. And what Billy said was, I don't want it either. I just want to get up there and jump around and rage. And everyone's like, hell yeah, I'm down with that. Let's do that. And I mean, watching her come out of Coachella, that was the craziest thing, watching her come out like 45 minutes late. It was the biggest show of her career. The album came out that week. It's going to go to number one. 
It's the first weekend at Coachella. There's like 50,000 people in front of the second stage headliner. This is pressure shit. And they're trying to clean. This is the first time they've rolled this stage out. They're like cleaning these like digital squares. And one of them goes down and they fix that one. Another one goes down and it goes five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And the people around us who are in a circle have gone from like, it's fine to it should be fine to like on the phone pacing. What's going on? The crowd is chanting, fix the screen, fix the screen. <laughs> it's just amazing. And then when, they, when there was one that was out they were trying to fix, they were going, one more cube, one more cube. <laughs> it was the most amazing like reaction. And, I, and all I can think of 40 minutes into this delay is what's going through this teenage kid's head, you know? And she comes out. She's like 16 at yeah, this point, yeah, right? Yeah, something like yeah. that. She, she comes out, crowd goes crazy, bad guy starts, goes for it, doesn't mention it, doesn't apologize for it, doesn't look shook, doesn't look rattled, doesn't look like any of it. And that's when I was like, man, I would say if you put a hundred performers from the most schooled and experienced right through to the newest up in that same environment as some kind of crazy test, she'd be the only one who wouldn't freak out. It was ridiculous. There might be some LeBron James shit going on here. Because hey. if you look back at all, all the hype and pressure LeBron was under basically from junior year on. Yeah, we talked And then about as that. a senior, he's basically a child celebrity. Yeah. And he's being graded by on some higher curve than anybody who's ever been in that position. And he handled his business the whole time. The only really dumb thing he ever did was the decision. Um, maybe she's wired that way. All I know is when my kids started listening to her, and I can't tell you how many hours of shitty music I'd listen to in my class <laughs> because of my daughter. <laughs> Because of your daughter. And my and now just like the pop, this when she started listening to the stuff starting four or five years ago or six years ago, whenever we started driving to soccer games, I'm like, oh man, this sucks. Yeah, it's a rough few years there for sure. It's the pop it's music, definitely a few mostly years. bad. And then when she started playing Billie Eilish, and it was like, who is this? Yeah. yeah. And then she's like, oh, she's this girl, she's 15 or 16, and like, what? Yeah. And like, wh who? What's going on? You and then it, it was just so far out of whack for any other type of music she was listening to. I mean, I don't even, know. The, even the last song they put out, right? And they came out with that Lucy at the end of the year. It's like the best Billie Eilish song yet. Yeah. So that's the scary thing is like the album is one thing, but that new song is like, oh God, like that's a wait, way to take one of the most overused, oversaturated, boring cliches in the music business, which is. I got everything I wanted. Now I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. How many people have tried to write that in a hotel room before they play the Continental American Airlines Burger King Arena, right? right? right. And failed. Right. It's almost like the stepping stone to the end. Mm -hmm. It's like a step to the to it's over. And she, they somehow made that into some kind of yearning universal moment. I don't know how they. That did. was the podcast we had always talked about that we should we, we should, should do. Yeah, we should do that. The the musician grappling with success song slash album is fascinating for everyone who goes through it. Yeah. And the Even precursor like, for creative death usually. It's, it's usually, usually. the beginning Sometimes of the it works out but well, though. I love the Nirvana reference because that, that band was an expression of how hard it was to be young at that time. Yeah. And Billie Eilish is a voice of what's hard about being a kid right now. Is. And that song indicates that she's not just in that box. She can make the step to something because she can't do that when she's 29. Right? Well, the fear Can is... Can she evolve as an artist? I mean, what and about that line in that song where she's like, like, I'm not somebody's daughter, where she's just like, how dare you abuse me? Like, I'm not, I'm not like 
a daughter to somebody. I'm not a human being. I don't have a mom or a dad or like that's just like my God. First time I heard that, man, I was just like, oh, yeah. like whoa, where where do you get this from? Like, how do you just put it like that? Well, the fear is that you make your money doing this stuff by going on tour, and she's been on tour for what three straight years. She's about to go out again, and that's how you burn some. We've had almost no teenage artists who've made it through an extended period like this. And by the way, what you said at the beginning of this pod is that she might be the first person since Christopher Cross to be best new artist and album of the year. Yeah, man. We've had no one in the last 25 years come out mentally healthy out of that situation. Almost no one. Maybe Timberlake's okay. Mm-hmm. Ax- Wait, Axl Rose. Right. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And and so so it's great that she's surrounded by her family and her brother, and mm. but, like, this is that critical moment where she's going to have a ton of pressure on the next record. Like mm-hmm. you said, she's playing an arena tour, which it doesn't seem like she feels that pressure, which is maybe what's unique about her. I don't get it. I don't feel it. But, I don't have idea. But the messianic sort of complex that gets— I don't know if the human brain at that age is built to handle the attention that she's getting. So I, Well, I wonder, like, with actors— where I just had Claire, we haven't run it yet, but I had Claire Danes on a podcast and she was talking about how she went to Yale for... Good she, flex, by the way. Wow, that's good. You, you're on fire right now. It's like someone just like... You sit, fucking go to Montana to interview Kanye no, upside down. Saying, like, no, I, I'm, no, I'm no, not topping your no, interviews. No, but I'm saying every time I Jesus. go to my gram and I, and, I, and, I, and I refresh my feed, you stand there You do get jealous a couple of times. Dude, I've, t- but then I've you, called you a few times and just been like, like, fuck, oh, dude. I'm on Bruce Springsteen's private jet. <laughs> doing oh, 45th anniversary of Born going? Run. Why are you going? Um, you got to you got to get Vitter on this new album. Now. You got to get Vitter about? on this new album. That would be. Incredible. You got to get Vitter on this oh, new album. Oh, Claire Danes. Yes. Anyway, my bad. I have that. Hold on. So she was saying how she was in my so-called life. She made a bunch of movies. She made Romeo and Juliet with Leo and all these different things. Yeah. And then she just went to college for three, four years. Right. And Jodie Foster did the same thing when she did it. And we've seen actors do that sometimes, and they usually come out of it really well when they when they. Well, you know out of who the did chaos. that. You know who did that really was Alanis. That's why everyone's looking at Alanis it's right another now. Another great one. And is like really like Alanis is, trust me, she's riding a wave right now. Like Alanis is, she was trending on Friday because of the Halsey record. Like it's on fire. Her Broadway shit's great. Everyone's stoked. And, um, and, and that's because, you know, she was Billy. Right. Jagged Little Pill was that yeah. album. Every kid her own age. 30 plus million she was albums. That young. She, yeah, was, she was 21. She was 19, 20, yeah, which, oh, which, which is basically like the equivalent of Billy now. Yeah, Remember, everything sure, was sure, a bit sure. older then. Yeah. And so, you know, she she came out, she crushed it, killed it, and then, you know, put out that song, Thank You, which I think is one of her best, and the next album, and they're just kind of like, cool. Just well, I could see Billy, cool, you know? I could see Billy doing this for one more year, and then it's like going to college. Like, she, she's super quirky. She is. It could happen. But you know, one of the great things about now is that when artists walk away, as long as they walk away on their own terms, then, you know, it's uh, so much more exciting when they choose to to come back. And, you know, I, I love the control. That's the thing I think one of the best things has come out of this era is artists get to control the pace a lot more. I think it was like, if you don't keep your foot to the floor, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the audience. You're going to lose it. And the same can be said now to a degree if you're not, if you haven't done the work or you haven't teed it up right. But, you know, I feel like, I mean, Drake had a quiet year last year. And I think he's got himself back into a pretty good frame for this year with the future thing and everything else. I mean, but you can control it a little more. Well, Nathan's the world's, world's leading Taylor Swift expert. <laughs> so you and, thought the album was over long? Well, she she put the pedal to the metal, but she also would step back every once in a while. But she definitely was driving, driving, driving. She does, a little too much. She does make long albums, though. I think that, I think every album of hers, and I don't mind saying it at all, is, is, a, is at least a couple of songs yeah. shy of being, you know, kind of perfect. But she also or understands— too long, I should say. But she also understands pace better than anybody, right? And so she knows when to go away and when to come back. And, yeah. 
what you're going to see from her now is the is to try to reinvent the touring model this summer, right? Yeah, that's right. She's focusing on that as much as she is from a, an album that I think was great. I, Reputation wasn't my favorite. I think there's some great cuts on there. I love Getaway Car, I love some others. But Lover, I think, is great if you edit it down four songs. That's not really what matters now. She's thinking about how you extend Stadiums. the career of an artist, how you take control of yeah. your rights as an artist. Like, she's really working on the business side more than I think most people appreciate. Well, she's got a lot of other things going on than just chasing the elusive, you know, energy of success, right? And the, and we've, we talked about the short-term kind of bump you get from that. Like, she's got other things going on in her life. She has to focus on. Do you think that Taylor, let me ask the, you clearly are a fan. Let me, let me ask you a question about her. Do you think that um the conversation that is always dancing around her albeit from a safe distance which is like when are you going to get up to Shangri-La and sit in the room with a microphone on and a couple of just great players like Rick's players or Mark's players Bronson and just record that like timeless sounding singer-songwriter Beck mutations moment because every person I talk to about Taylor we're almost we almost say in a hushed way in case we're going to offend her with pop sensibilities by suggesting it we all want it She's good. It's that or the country it's album. Like Lover Times one. Twelve. I agree, and uh, I keep waiting for it. But you know what she does with almost every song, and she did this uh, with this album. Is she shows us how it's created from start to finish using her social channel. She actually shows us what the Max Martinized song sounded like when it was just her and the piano from mm-hmm. the beginning. So I, I would love for her to do that as an album. It feels like she is inspired by the creative process of taking it from that inception to mm. the color that she turns the the, the music into. I'm, I, I know. I think she's got ten in the ten in the canon that are just like yeah. crushes. Yeah, and you just get that like. Yeah. The, just that dryness and that bass is just so warm and rich you just want to sleep in it and it's just like and then that the guitars just sound amazing and that voice and it's just ah, I mean that will just be like she's a good enough singer for it now she probably wasn't five ten years ago she's yeah. a good Can enough I have a singer counter? for it now. yeah I think musicians are like athletes and I think it becomes tougher and tougher to do the best thing of your life when you've been at it, it for like 15 years yeah at some point you are who you are yeah now I agree with you I think or you've said be, all you have to say. And people are used to your voice. I think that's a big thing. I think people get used to sound and the familiarity of it. And in some cases... Good. So are you excited for this Pearl Jam record? Well, so that that one, they're mixing it up and going and really experimenting, which is something... They are? That's the word in the street. I'm There's some it. experimentation. I mean, I mean, it's funny, you know. I remember when Vitalogy came out, everyone was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, there was anger. You know, it was people <laughs> were just the like, rat song? what's the rats? What's this? And with this song on there, which he's just murmuring incoherently like he's drunk with this weird out of tune thing. And now I look back on that record as probably my favorite. So it's record. like, you know, I'm there's think- a lot of purpose behind that album, too. Yeah. It was basically like, there's. Too many people on this boat right now. Yeah, I feel like Eddie. I'd like to knock some of the people out of the boat. Please I just, leave. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're saying the same thing. I think yeah, Eddie, I think just Eddie Wynn is my band. <laughs> yeah, I think he just sort of went like, "Thanks, Stone. Thanks, everybody. We're in the same band, but I'm gonna run this show from this point of view from here." At least that's what it sounded like well, the, to me. The documentary that Cameron Crowe did, which I think is really good, I, I it's eighty percent where I wanted to get to, but. It really dives into that band had a key moment where they brought Eddie in. It wasn't his band. He's yeah. just a singer. He was lucky. He should have been lucky to be there, basically. And then at some point, every band kind of looks at each other 
and and there's going to be an alpha dog fight. And Eddie was like, I'm the alpha dog. And those guys were like, we brought you in. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> and they had And sometimes that can break a band up. In that yeah. case, they fought through it. But yeah. I love when bands, every band, and I think some <laughs> bands have had this point multiple times, but yeah. they always hit a, a point where they're either going to break up or stay together. Yeah, It's totally. like a marriage. Totally. Absolutely. And it's going to happen. Like even you two had it. Definitely. They've had it multiple times, they I think. Fucking probably Germany. times we don't even know about. They probably well, had There's a documentary moments. about it. It's yeah. a great one The uh, about when they were making the Octung Baby album, but about right. how they right. kind of hit the tail end and they started going in different directions. Well, I think that they're notorious for making it very difficult for themselves. I think they're notorious for like really putting them through the process when they make an album of like, in the Defiant Ones, they talk about how Rattle and Hum broke Jimmy, like basically yeah. sent Jimmy off to run a record industry because it's like, I can't do this anymore. You guys are insane. And so I think that they have a work ethic, which is like second to none almost, you know, whereas Pearl Jam, I feel like somewhere along the line, just hit this sweet spot where they yeah. just went like, well, we own our own, we own our own building. Everything we need is here. We've got everybody on stuff. We've made enough money now to keep this rolling for the rest of our lives. We know where the surf beaches are. Our families are happy. We're just going to get on with making music. And if we decide to put it out, great. And if not, we'll just go do 12 stadiums this year. Anybody? Hey, when is, uh, what's the one in Boston called with the Red Sox play? Fenway. Yeah. Can we get three nights in Fenway next year? It's like, yeah, you can get them in these nights. Cool. Book them. Sold out. Done. Go home. Cook dinner for the family the next day. I mean, they've kind of worked it out. Well, you know, the thing... I, I didn't even tell you this house. I went to, uh, Flea had his, you know, he's got his music school here and he had his, the charity event. So we went and Eddie was there and Eddie sang Better Man mm. with like 12 kids from the school. And he was so thrilled and delighted by it. Like you could just, he was like just beaming. He just loves it. And I think those are the people that keep going. Yeah, he it's loves the it. One, the ones that truly love it are the ones that can maybe well, hang around 30 years. he to have control from the day it went crazy. And, the, and what you hear Time in those magazine first, cover. What you hear in those f crazy, heady times, first half of the 90s, madness. Madness for so many reasons. And then you hear in those first four albums, Eddie is just one step at a time, dragging it back into the band, dragging it back into the band. And then they got to a point where it's like, cool, now we have complete control. Eddie's like, that's all I ever wanted. It's funny, um, as you describe that, it, it sounds to me a little bit of, of Foo Fighter like with Dave, yeah. with Foo Fighters, with Dave, but, but he was always been in charge. I thought, when he, you said Foo Fighter, I thought they broke up and like there was a rogue Foo Fighter. <laughs> well, how about this? Again, they did as well. Foo Fighter. Yeah. He is. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. But it was always, he started as a one-man band. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, so it was, there was never an alpha dog uh, debate. There was never any question whose band it That's was. That's right. Ever. Ever. But I think it's, I think he has realized now that it is his and Taylor's band. I think he knows it's a band. He mm. doesn't want Pat to leave. Or, and sure as hell can't take Nate out of the equation. He's been there from day one. But I think he knows that there's a dynamic between him and Taylor. Look, if you're Dave Grohl and you're that drummer, the first thing you want to know when you go in the studio is that you're not looking at your drummer going, oh, God, <laughs> I want to just redo that, right? And so to have Taylor in the band where he trusts him, loves his playing more than his own, that's why we have Foo Fighters. Yeah. Otherwise, it would just be the Dave Grohl solo show again, you know? Who's the biggest band in the world right now? Band Band? Yeah. Band Band. Are we talking contemporary? Are we talking tickets? Biggest band in the world right now. You asked me this last time and I got myself I know. in trouble. Well, now it's 2020. We're in a new decade. BTS? I <laughs> yeah, probably. Good answer. Good answer. Is that the Korean kids? 
Yeah. Oh, out of here. I have no idea. I, have I mean, no idea. I don't know. I think it's. Well, I think we're all individual now. You know, the biggest tour last year was. There's probably some band that's been around 25 years. Rolling Stones. Pink? Ed Sheeran's Pink. Oh, Pink. Yeah, Pink, Pink kills But it. really, it was Ed Sheeran. Yeah. From a gross. Uh, you know, on a contemporary level, I'm going you know, to throw a couple of names out there that do very well still. I mean, you know, 21 Pilots do really well. Like, they're actually on an ascent. Like, they, they continue to continue to stream really well. Yeah. They continue to sell more tickets. Like, they're headed that way. In terms of stadiums, Probably Foo Fighters is the truth. I mean, they could play any stadium in the world now, whether it's, you know, Europe. I mean, they just do stadiums. Boom. So, I mean, I'd say Foo Fighters are probably the biggest band That's in the world. amazing second act for that, dude. And, and, and it's been going on for a long a time. 20 plus year. Yeah. yeah. But you know why, right? Work. That guy yeah. works. That The project he did, was it at the end of last year? Where he he um, did a 12-minute instrumental where he played every instrument and they filmed it. Yeah. And they so show him. It was awesome. They, they, they combined the video of him playing each of the instruments and it's a band of eight of Grohl's. him. Say Grohl's. Eight Dave Grohl's. So, and and the intensity of the process. Yeah. That's the, what, what Zane's talking about. Yeah. It's, it's almost like an insight to how he did the first record, which... I still remember the day that I got a Foo Fighters cassette in New Zealand. And I didn't know what it was. No one told me what it was. It just arrived from the record label, obviously, by design. Don't tell anyone who did this. Mm. And there was four songs on it. And it was like, weenie beanie. This is a call. I'll stick around. and Maybe ecstatic. So it was good. It was like four good ones. And I put it in. I was just like... What the fuck is this? This is amazing. And then like two days later, the label was like, all right, we can tell you now it's Dave Grohl. And I was just like, oh shit, it's about to get real. And that was my favorite album for a long, long time. You know, I, yeah, I think he's incredible. He's a real one. I don't think there's an answer to biggest band. You've rethought it? No, I just, I think everyone would come up with a different thing, but it's so funny. That was like the, the heavyweight boxing championship you know, forever, where it'd be like, who's that boy champ? Oh, it's Tyson. Well, do you remember when Bono went Holmes. on stage and he claimed it? He was like, I'm taking it back mm -hmm. in London when Oasis were the biggest. I was stunned. It it's so funny watching my son really get into music and, you know, he's been playing the bass and the guitar the last year and the, and his influences. <laughs> it's all the stuff we listen to. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, like probably night. the most modern one's Metallica, but when he was playing your stuff, it was all stuff from our generation. Yeah, right. The most modern was Metallica. He played Nirvana. He played Guns N' Roses. ACDC. You didn't see These him. things are fucking timeless. They're yeah. never going to go away. Listen, him and Lucci, our kid, and their band during a performance, they had to write an original song at school the other day, and their one was it called— It was pretty good. It's amazing. You were there? No, I, got, I saw the video. Oh, dude, then you'll know. They did a song called Marjorie, which was great, but what was even greater was that Ben, midway through the song, while he's playing bass, which was like a legit heavy bass. It's a heavy, heavy bass. The strap comes off. Mm. Now, I've watched pros— throw their bass at the tech and fix it for me and bring it back and is what it is. Ben, I have to get up for this. So if you're listening to this, you have to use your imagination. Ben puts his foot, foot on a chair that was there, rests the bass on his knee and plays it while the guy comes up and puts the strap back around. Nice. Yeah, he never, so he never stopped. He never stopped. Oh, and I said to him afterwards, that was single-handedly the best moment of the whole night because it just showed that he was like willing <laughs> The show must go on. Uh -huh. like, I'm serious about this. This isn't like, I'm not playing here. Yeah, it know? is funny because his son and my son, they both like really genuinely love music. And you can see how this stuff goes. It's like their favorite thing to do is they just had to sleep over two nights ago. Yeah, they just made music just, into the early hours. In the crazy. bedroom, just making shit. And 
I think that will never go away. It's just the question for me is the individual versus the band and the whole concept of if I'm going to do this, well, I should just do it all myself and not with them. I'm just talking in general. But what she's saying the now— The Taylor Swift model is always the easier model to understand, I think, for this generation. Well, it's e- Selfie narcissist. That, but also accessibility, convenience of making music. Um, get a laptop, get some cheap software, get in there, make your own shit. Oh, I'll just demo it myself. Ah, oh, sounds pretty good. I'll put it on SoundCloud. Oh, a million people liked it. Oh, record label's calling me. Oh, I'm an artist now? That happens all the time. And so before you even think about sharing, <laughs> you're not even there yet. You're like, oh my God. And you're like, what happens to Cobain? Let's put him in a time machine. Tough. And you throw him in a 2020. Does I mean, he have a band? You can't even go there. No. Exist. Is he by himself? He he had demons that, you know, I'm not you even talking about process. the demons part. I'm no, just but saying no, like, but House is right. That's, he makes a good, that's, his, that's the point. That's, that's why he identity. did it. Like, I mean, he would have done it now the way he did it then because he had to do it. It wasn't, he didn't want to do it. He didn't wake up one day and go, I'm going to be a superstar. There's probably an element of that. It's pretty well documented that he was an ambitious guy. Right. People don't like to think of him of But him I'm as saying, that, would he, he have wanted band members or would he have just soloed it and just used all the devices we have now and that's, cut out everybody That's a else? good question. I don't know. He would have gotten it out. Yeah. He would have gotten it out. I think like he would have used the devices. I think he would have found people. I, I think at the guts of it. I mean, you know, I just was observing it as an intense fan and a contemporary. I mean, he's only a little bit older than us. Yeah. But check um, this out. We're about to enter into this. This is a super Billy agitated. Corgan definitely wouldn't have. He would have been like, fuck that. I'm not using <laughs> anybody. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I mean, playing every instrument. I'll just yeah. fuse it together. Yeah, I mean, fuck everybody. I'm yeah, pretty but the, insta-famous. At the height of Smashing Pumpkins, he was probably going, eh, no. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, I think... Um, I know this. I think the day and age of a, of a Nirvana or whatever coming out, this agitated rock and roll, we got to stop pretending like that's due a comeback. Like, things go forward. They don't really go around. We like right. to think that they go around in circles, but everything just goes one way and that's forward, right? And if it happens to be a similar experience than it was, but it didn't go back to go there. It went forward. And so if things are going forward, Guitars are definitely a part of the equation right now. If you look at Muramasa, who's this cool underground, very credible producer who, who, who makes a lot of noise in the UK, his comment in his latest article in the enemy is like, if you're not making music with guitars right now, you're, you're an idiot. And, you know, got slow tie and all these really cool things in the UK re- just represent this very agitated time. And you've got these hip hop producers like Internet Money wanting to bring guitars in. And so it's starting to factor in. But the idea of like the strokes coming back and skinny jeans and playing music that sounds like the MC5 mixed with Guided by Voices, I don't know anymore. You know? That was so funny, You uh, the, the point, because Nate and I were talking about Lizzo earlier. Yeah. The performance on Saturday Night Live blew my mind. The composition of Truth Hurts with a band of women playing SG guitars. And going hard. I loved it. It blew my mind. It it, it was so, I earned such a respect. I mean, that's just like, if you get to a point where you can play SNL or Headliner Festival and you've got all these brilliantly constructed pop songs, you then, and you really want to perform, like you really want to be in the pantheon of great performers, right? You, you don't want to bring the thing that you had when you were struggling, which is your PA back up. Right. You've done that. You get to a point where you finish your song, Truth Hurts, and it's like, You know, that classic ending that they do on the live things every time where the band is just like going crazy. I mean... I got chills just now, and I got chills watching it, you know, a month ago. You know, Beyonce's made an entire modern career out of every one of her pop songs. She will let the band rinse it right. mm-hmm. when, it's, when it's live, you know, mm-hmm. rinse it. One thing we established the last time we were together was what the first song on a Smashing Pumpkins playlist should be. I got mine. No, I, you were right. 
muzzle. The playlist has to start with this song. Has we to. decided. Yeah. It's so perfect. It's like it's like Billy's entire life in three minutes. And the ending is just like the end. Of, it's like the beginning of the concert and the end of the concert in three and a half minutes. It starts at the beginning of the concert and it ends with the end of the concert in one song. It's perfect. How do we fix the Grammys and make people care about it again? It's coming up. Why aren't there great, iconic Grammy music performances anymore? Because they throw everybody together like it's a giant wedding band. It's still like a giant stage, though, for the nation. The nation so you're saying will, like Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand. You want that again? I'm, I'm fine with that. That was a great moment. I am fine with that. It was really great. Well, why can't it happen? Well, I will say this about award shows in general. That when we were growing up watching the MTV Awards and the Grammys and the Oscars and all these things, again, to refer to our age, it was a big deal. It was like once a year, everyone's in one room and the adrenaline and the ego and the winning and losing all came together and crazy shit happened, right? Yes. And people forgot there were even cameras on them and it was madness. Now, that happens all day, every day on the phone. Mm. kids are getting that adrenaline of that controversy, that beef, that smoke, all that stuff they want is there. There's countless podcasts, too many to mention, that focus on the drama, you know, let alone YouTube videos. And it's all available. So the idea of bringing an award show in now to people's lives as something that should be scheduled like a sporting match, because we all know that sporting events are the only things outside of major news issues that people really only focus on in sports because it has to happen in that moment. There needs to be some addition. We need to feel like we're adding value to the experience everyone already gets mm. because there isn't the window anymore of like, this is our shot. We got three hours and you're going to watch it because it's the only time you get to see it. So you're going to watch it anyway. So odds are in our favor. Odds aren't in any award show's favor anymore. I don't care what they're giving away because, you know, it's every day, all day. So how do you make it successful or relevant or whatever? It's, it, it's going to require soul searching. It's going to require maybe you, take a, you have to look at the award show as an actual experience rather than focusing on one versus the other. You can't say like, why are the Grammys irrelevant? Why are the Oscars irrelevant? Well, why are this, these, these awards irrelevant? Why are the Brits irrelevant? You know, like it's all much of a muchness to me. It's all a big prize given. I don't think the Grammys are irrelevant. I think, <clears throat> I think uh, they don't really capture what happened in the year. I think the Oscars are about as good as we're going to do with an award show where it doesn't get it right all the time, but at least when you look, if you look back and you go through different years, you can look at all the nominees and you can look at who won for maybe two out of every three times mm. and say, all right, that's a pretty good snapshot. We can't do that with, with the well, Grammys. We, in part because his, now the biggest albums all get released in the fourth quarter and they're not eligible. So you got to wait a full year <laughs> to Nathan, come back to the point. album to see what happens. And at that point, you're especially this day and age, you're on to the next one. House, the only thing I was going to say about the shows is like 90% of an artist's income, 85, comes from the road now. So maybe, just maybe, you don't want to give up the goods and, you know, shoot your shot on national television. You want to hold that back for where you make your income, right? Huh. Beyonce's... Coachella show, an example of that. You could have done that on national television, holding that back for what she goes and takes on the road. Keep the money for yourself. I don't know. That's a cynical way to think no, about it. No, I think it. it's cynical at all. I think those are both really excellent points, good insider points, you know? I, I, I also think it depends on how far it travels and how much impact it has on your, on your career, right? Math doesn't lie. You know, Post Malone's back at number one right now because with Circles because he played on the Rock and Eve thing with Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, Ryan Seacrest's booking strategy just got better. 
right? It just got easier for him next year, you know? So it's like, it, it, it's all about the, the, the reflection after the fact. And, um, you know, I, I, just think, I just think award shows in general need to start taking a look at what they mean as a whole. I, I, it's too late for the Grammys. I don't see how they bounce back. Where in a way that I would actually take the awards seriously. Mm. Feels like that point passed 15 years ago. But if it was an entertaining television show with, that would help. with acts, you know, they were incented and felt motivated to go do something slightly unique musically. Well, let's see how this year goes. I mean, aside from what you said before, which is, you know, absolutely. I, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, they've got Billy and they've got Lizzo. And they got Nas X. Yep. They got the three artists that matter. Yeah. And those are the three artists that galvanized the youth last year. They got all three of them pretty invested this year from a performance and a nominations point of view. Um, and I think, you know, we'll see how that resonates. And if that resonates and if kids actually go, yeah, I see these things all the time, but it's nice seeing my favorite artist in a big environment and like a, wow, this is the prize giving. Cool. Let's see how Billy handles it. You might see a bump. And if you see a bump, then, then you, you've got your answer, right? More relevance, less retrospective celebration. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're a little bit retrospect. You know, it's a bit like we celebrate, we celebrate this, we celebrate this, this, this legendary, the legendary, the legends. And it's like, all right, cool. Like. There's a lot of young legends being built all the time right now, you know? This is fun. Thanks for doing this. I think I'm done. I'm out of topics. Unless you have any more, Nathan. Um, I'm done. I think Taylor Swift should call up Ian McKay and ask about building your own independent who would you? Who would you get to produce the next Taylor Swift record? Nathan. Not Jack Antonoff. Uh, a country person. She should try to make the best country album. Steve in the Albini. Last years. <laughs> That's Who would you pick? Legit. Me? Yeah. I've always wanted to room with Rick just because he's a performance producer, yeah. right? He likes to get the sound of the room and the performance right. And then he's like, done, print it. You know what I mean? And I love that. But I also think that she would be, I, I love the sound of those Beck albums that he does with Nigel Godrich. I think Nigel Godrich would be to get him into a zone when he pulls out the analog, all those beautiful mics, that analog processing. I just want it to sound rich and warm. I don't want, you know what I mean? Like I want it to sound like, 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 okay. I don't want to compare Taylor to another artist of her circle. So I'm just comparing apples and oranges, but also they're in the fruit bowl, <laughs> their songs, right? I like, like slow burn. Like the first time you hear slow burn on the Casey album, that mm -hmm. first song, you're like, oh, I'm in. Like I'm so in because it sounds so amazing it just sounds like you want to listen to it over and over and over and over again like it's good for your soul <laughs> zane low what do you have to plug none okay. i just came here for the fun this is great zane low nathan hubbard joe Hass, a pleasure thanks to zip recruiter thanks to jay adande and zane low nathan hubbard and joe house thanks to norton secure vpn if you're one of the 26 percent of u.s adults that's online almost constantly you need norton secure vpn uses bank-grade encryption to block companies from tracking your online activity and works on your PC, Mac, or mobile device. Get Norton Secure VPN and browse privately. Secure your connections today. Head to norton.com slash VPN. Simmons protection starts at $3.33 a month for the first year with annual enrollment terms. Do apply. Also, thanks to Square, the company that makes that little way. Yeah, Square. Credit card reader. You might not know that Square also makes pretty much everything you need to run and grow any kind of business like point of sale, payroll, online stores, invoicing. See how Square can take your business from square one to whatever's next at square.com slash go slash BS. Back on Thursday with a Super Bowl preview until then.